and welcome back to Butter With That. This week, the gang is all together, and we are bringing you our second of our new type of Megasode. We are talking about five movies today, all related around a specific theme, uh, what I've kind of been thinking of as 80s grab bag. Um, not necessarily the most, like what you might be would find on a list of like the 80s movies, but movies that to us, um, you know, feel 1980s to us, movies that are really important in the 80s to us. Uh, but before we dive into our movies, how's everybody doing? Good. Um, on Disney Plus, I have started to rewatch a show called So Weird. I don't know if anybody here watched um, it. I love So Weird. <laughs> yes. It's on Disney Plus? Uh-huh. All oh places. my God. I feel like that alone is a reason that I should just get a Disney Plus subscription uh, oh my god that was like it was like the perfect like teen paranormal like x-filesy thing oh it was I, so cool but but like they're on, on like the tour van because yeah, the mom yeah. was like a musician mm -hmm. <laughs> i loved that show yep. sam oh you have brought back so many joyful memories. You know what? Like, it is still very good. And all the, all the episodes are coming back to me. There was this gremlin one, and I was like, I remember this, yeah. and I remember a pile of logs. <laughs> and then would you know that the very last shot was a pile of logs? Everyone was like, well, where are the logs, Sam? It was the last shot. <laughs> I remember the Banshee episode, like, yeah. vividly. Yeah. Yeah, that one and like the one where she's in a, a coma, a coma, and then like yeah, that. Ugh. I never really put it together, but I think my love of X Files probably began not with watching X Files as a young person, but probably watching so weird. I remember like ten years ago trying to hunt it down, and I found some like fan um, like protests to like put it on DVD, and I was like, of course I'm signing this. I want to own So Weird. <laughs> Anybody else, anyone's been, anything else anyone's been watching? Um, well, this weekend, Garrett and I went to the Navy Yard to go see Tenant, uh, which it was, like, really fun to, like, go see a movie because it's, we haven't seen a movie since March or February, like, in theaters, so going to the drive-in felt like the safest, like, most accessible way for us to do that. And I've never been down to the Navy Yard. It was actually like really nice by the water and everything. Um, Tenet is like lower tier Nolan, I think for sure. But like the cast is really great. Um, John David Washington is amazing. He like should be the next James Bond. He's like so good. Um, I got to see a new Wonder Woman trailer and a new James Bond trailer while we were there too, which was pretty fun. Um, and the new Wonder Woman one shows uh, Kristen Wiig in her like outfit and everything. She's like a cheetah, right? Yeah, or something. it looks pretty dope. Um, and then the other thing we've been, uh, Garrett and I have not seen um, Firewalk with me or the new Twin Peaks. So we watched the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. We watched Firewalk with me, I think last week. And then we're in the middle of the return right now, which is really good. But Firewalk with me is like an excellent movie. Um, it was so cool. If you're into Twin Peaks, uh, yeah, Firewalk with me is just fucking amazing. So I was really excited to see that. 
I watched a movie that was pretty surprising. I don't think I talked about it yet on the podcast. Um, the movie called My Spy with Dave Bautista. Uh, it was supposed to be released this year in theaters and then just got pushed and then eventually the studio just put it on Amazon. And you know what? It was pretty good. Uh, Dave Bautista definitely brings that like Drax energy from Guardians. Um, I think he's like a really good kind of straight man with also like some good gags in there. He plays this like soldier turned spy who's really incompetent at his job. And so he gets um, put on this mission with uh, Kristen Shaw, who voices the comedian who voices Bob's Burgers. Tina. Um, so kind of gets teamed with her and so they have to like info, you know kind of spy on this family and then the daughter finds them and then he ends up like having to train the daughter so she like keeps a secret uh, it was pretty funny kind of up there with like the pacifier with Vin Diesel like big buff bald dude teams up with children um, and I would you know I would recommend my spy it was cute the romantic kind of part of it wasn't so great but um, definitely a lot of like self-aware movie references mm. um, like Indiana Jones and other really popular really good movies Oh, I forgot I wanted to tell you guys, too, um, for Tenant, the score was really good, and I thought it was just Hans Zimmer doing the score again, but it was uh, Ludwig Gordonson who did Black Panther and The Mandalorian, so he's fantastic, just, like, from those two things alone, so, like, the Tenant score is, like, one of the best parts of it, too, so I was just very excited that, because we also, like, watched Black Panther recently, so it was, like, pretty fun to see this new, like, artist, like, winning awards for really awesome scores and, like, seeing him do all this, like, big action stuff, so. Uh, Connor, I never really thought about big buff men teaming up with children as, like, a genre, <laughs> but you're right! Like, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Hollywood loves it. Rock's we'll be discussing it later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not going to eat up time on this podcast by going into the garbage that I've been consuming. And by <laughs> garbage, I mean I am on season three of The OC currently. <laughs> That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> it was a mistake. It was a grave mistake and a mistake I can only resolve by now getting to Marissa's death. And I'm calling it quits at that key plot point. That's all I'll say. <laughs> but you know what? I am excited that Adam Brody has made a career for himself doing like weird indie movies and appearing as kind of just like random shit bags and stuff. I find it like very amusing whenever he pops into things. It's definitely amusing. I will say that re upon rewatch, the like Seth Cohen is like the worst person <laughs> and character <laughs> ever written and created. Like, wow. I mean, and I'm saying this from a from a position of like like watching that show and being like, oh, so witty, so amazing. Like, like recognizing that all of that wit is actually just like extremely um toxic and <laughs> not i mean the whole but but i will say peter gallagher great great characters but anyhow that's all that's my two cents <laughs> nice uh, i've seen um I, I went back and revisited um um being john malkovich the uh, charlie kaufman film or Tra spike jones film written by charlie kaufman which uh, really blew me away. I hadn't seen it in a couple of years and it really kind of bowled me over, uh, which led into uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which just came out September 4th. Uh, 
pretty much brand new release direct to Netflix, uh, Charlie Kaufman writing and directing this one. So his most recent installment um, starring uh, Jesse Plemons and uh, Jesse Buckley, uh, both of whom are fantastic in this movie, but it's also a pretty challenging movie. It's extremely tense and like very intentionally uncomfortable and via Kaufman, like very artistically, like centered around a meditation on solipsism and uh, kind of the perversion of memory because of one's internal internal internalization and perception of everything. Um, so I did think it was good, but I don't know. It, it felt a little weaker on his first watch than most Kaufman films. So I'm going to have to go back and see it again. There was one uh, review um, by uh, Adam Graham of the Detroit News who, who gave it a C, uh, but made a note that though the uh, performances are excellent uh i'm thinking of anything is, is an unsolvable riddle where the only answer is mankind's hopelessness and we've been down this road before which feels a little true of this movie uh, but again i'm gonna have to go back and see it because it's a kaufman movie it's gonna take further dissection but um i i did enjoy it but maybe not as much as his other work i heard it's like really referential and like mm -hmm. in a way that <clears throat> maybe overwhelms itself with like constant references to like literature and like cult like like cultural like i haven't seen it i'm gonna watch it i'm, I'm eager to see it did any of you guys see the movie beast it was no. with jesse buckley and i don't remember this other actor's name but it's like kind of a take on beauty and the beast but like not really um and it's it's really really great and her, Jesse Buckley's performance is wonderful. So I'm eager oh, to see Oh, I remember her. that movie, yeah. Um, I saw it at the Ritz like a couple years ago and it was really, really good. Mm. Um, and it kind of like has this sort of like uh, fairy tale feel to it, but it's just about the relationship she has with this kind of like outsider rebel guy and sort of the tension and sort of like fractious relationship they have in this small English seaside island town or something. Um, anyhow, I like, I, I was like, oh, she's great. I would definitely want to see her in some new stuff. She's very good in this. And, uh, and so is uh, Jesse Plemons, who uh, it really feels like channeling a lot of like Philip Seymour Hoffman in some very haunting and mm. weird ways. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I'd say check it out, but with the caveat that uh, it's a bummer and it's confusing, but it's probably a movie I'll watch again. That was so wild when you were watching Being John Malkovich. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, I'm watching it too. And it's because of Netflix. Mm -hmm. Netflix just knows how to like get everyone to watch the same movie at the same time. Especially considering that this movie is just coming out, so they want to roll out more of his properties, I'm sure, under their banner to yes, hook people, yes. which makes sense. Work for me. <laughs> I think being John Malkovich was the first Netflix movie I watched streaming. Oh. Like the first post-DVD Netflix movie I saw. Well, it's back. Check it out. I loved it. <laughs> Again. While you guys were watching Being John Malkovich, I was, at the same time, I was watching Legends of the Fall, which, like, I love that movie so much, but I hadn't watched it in a really long time, and watching it again, as, like, a 30-year-old woman, my perspective is so different. You know, like, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, Brad Pitt, like, you know, that's the dream, man, that's this. I, no, he sucks. <laughs> so it's so interesting. 
And this would be like a movie that I would love to talk about with you guys because like there's like um, a, a native indigenous element to it all that like I can't decide if I hate or not. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. If you haven't seen it, um, I, it's good. Well, awesome. Um, well, let's dive into our theme uh, for this mega episode. As I mentioned at the top, we are talking about 80s movies. Uh, pretty big variety um, of 80s <laughs> movies here. And we're going to talk about them tonight in release order. So I'm going to turn it over to Tori, who is talking about video drone. Yeah, I was going to see if anyone can see my shirt. Long live the new flesh, everyone. I saw, yeah. I was like, let's, wait a minute. Yeah. Let's talk talk some video drone. So um, I have been writing a, a series on David Cronenberg for like about a year now at Cinema 76. Um, video drone is the first movie that really got it started for me. I had seen other Cronenbergs before, but I was so entranced by this movie when I first saw it that I like immediately watched it again afterwards and like listened to Cronenberg's commentary on it. Um, and I'm really, and from this movie became really obsessed specifically with David Cronenberg's movies and um, specifically like the themes of gender and sex that are pretty like prevalent throughout his his career. I think like he's like, you know, in his 70s now. And I think like a couple weeks ago, like there was an interview with him and like the title of it was just like, all movies are sex or something. And I was like, <laughs> I love David Cronenberg. He's such like a madman. Um, so yeah, this this is like the movie that got it really started for me with him and now he has become like one of my favorite directors um and this is my favorite David Cronenberg movie so I'm like very excited to talk about this one um so who had seen this for the first time awesome I had so I had a me, feeling I guess, yeah. yeah I had a feeling um so what were your impressions of Videodrome and also, have you guys seen, like, other Cronenberg stuff? Like, no, not really. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I watched Dead Zone recently. And oh, I watched I it recently, too. I couldn't believe that those movies came out either in the same year, within mm-hmm. a year of one another. And I was like, I couldn't think of two more opposite movies. But I loved your article, uh, Tori, because you mm-hmm. talked about, yeah, how different those two movies are and like looking at or like Cronenberg talking about like dead zone being a movie about like repression (laughs) and that is that was really interesting and I didn't know I knew both were Cronenberg but I didn't know that they came out so so uh close to one another yeah that was really interesting then watching Videodrome with that understanding yeah, that's cool. I'm glad. I'm yeah. I'll talk a little bit more kind of about like the time period for that too, because I since I've been following his career, like what he's done and how he's done it has been like fascinating to me. Because um, now, like in his more recent stuff, he did things like uh, History of Violence and um, oh crap, uh, Eastern, Eastern Promises. Eastern Promises yeah. yeah, which is like so vastly different than this. So his career is really fascinating to me too. Um, but Connor and Sam, like what, what were your thoughts? A part of me did not like this movie just after like immediately finishing it. And then after sitting on it for two or three days, it really grew my mind for how much I liked it. It was just mm-hmm. like, I definitely appreciated in the moment, the body horror elements, uh, the prosthetic design, the, perform- but just, I don't know, something about it just like didn't sit right with me. And I think in like 
looking back a good way mm. um, about it. And I was just sort of amazed at how a movie from, what was it, 1983? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, feels like if you just put cell phones in their hands instead of TVs in their living room, it's, you could do almost the same exact mm. movie, even with like VR headsets, uh, like and all. So in that way, it was pretty interesting to be like, he was working with themes that we're still addressing today, you know, 30 yeah. plus years later. Hmm. Um, uh, everybody's favorite Sam Hates Things is back. Um, I knew I you had were a feeling, yeah. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> um, here's the thing. I could not separate my hatred of James Woods to really give this movie a, a chance. And I, I really tried, but I, I just fucking couldn't do it. However, um, I, I watched it today. I watched it this morning. And then, Tori, you sent out your article. When I read your article, I was like, oh, you know what? That really puts things into a different perspective. So I don't like it, but I think, like, I can appreciate the elements that you talked about. So, like, I wouldn't give it a total, like, this movie sucks. But maybe it's just, like, not my cup of tea. I think that's totally fair, and I, like, kind of thought that might happen, and I, like, thought very last minute to send you guys my article, and I was like, oh, like, if people are having trouble, like, connecting to this movie, maybe it'll help to at least, like, show, like, the stuff that I really latch on to when I watch this movie, and I for sure want to talk about James Wood's casting in it, too, because mm-hmm. I think that aspect of this is, like, really fascinating, and wonder if that is intentional or not, because James Woods is... Uh, for sure a giant scumbag. Uh, so <laughs> um, that'll be kind of interesting to talk about. So yeah, um, this was, it came out in 1983. Um, this was one of Cronenberg's like early films. Um, he had done Shivers, Rabid. Uh, he did a racing movie, Fast Company, and then he did uh, Videodrome. Um, and so Videodrome was kind of his like baby. It, which makes sense so much of like anxieties that he has like that if you watch some of his later films like is still dealing with like you can see so much of him dealing with all of this in Videodrome and that just being like a constant theme like throughout um but yeah this movie flopped in theaters it did not do very well critics did not like view this very tenderly either um so it also like totally crushed him when this movie failed and then he went on to do adapted material by doing the dead zone which um i like that movie kind of um but it's very obvious that he did not connect to the source material and like really just had trouble adapting king i think um but then after that he does the fly which is also adapted material but is like fucking phenomenal amazing Um, yeah it's so good and i i thought about doing the fly because i think at least um i think like the story itself is probably a little more like coherent um Mm -hmm. and then the acting's really great but like the body horror is like full-on like disgusting body horror like you're watching jeff goldblum like fall apart like throughout the movie and i was like maybe this is like a later cronenberg we talk about um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's the romance in that is really good you know it's um Jeff Goldblum and why am I blank? Gina Davis, who are both like fucking fantastic. So um, as his career goes on and he does more adapted work with like direct with like um, material he likes, like Naked Lunch and um, Crash, it becomes pretty obvious that he's like good with that when he actually cares about like the subject material. 
Um, so I guess to kind of just like give a brief synopsis, synopsis of Videodrome, um, the story is uh, about a man named Max Wren, who's played by James Wood, who owns this really, is a president of like this really small um, company that like shows mostly like softcore porn, like torture, stuff like that. Um, and so he's like kind of a sleaze bag who's like just, you know, putting whatever he can to get to make money. Um, and he eventually stumbles upon this signal um, called Videodrome and it's all torture. There's like no major themes to it. You're just watching people get tortured and die. Um, and that's what he like becomes obsessed with. Um, little does he know, Videodrome is this larger, you know, entity that um, has these effects on people, including like hallucinations and eventually kind of like controlling people. Um, but he has this like interesting journey as this scumbag eventually kind of like becomes a pawn in this like larger system because of his obsession with like death and torture and, and like torture porn stuff. Um, so yeah, that's like the, I guess, general overview of Videodrome. Um, but I'm interested too, just like what you guys like thought were some interesting ideas or scenes and like stuff that really stuck out for you with this movie. Cause there's so much weird imagery and body horror and stuff. Debbie Harry. I mean, oh, she's so good. She's great. She's very good. <laughs> at it. Uh, I think it's a movie that, um, because it is kind of like Cronenberg's first big, like, um, kind of like authored piece, you know, it, 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 I think it introduces a lot of really interesting ideas, but doesn't see them through with the efficacy that he does later in his career. Um, it throws a lot of stuff at the wall that provides some really interesting, like, f contextual, like, frameworks for the narrative, especially in the second act, when we kind of start to realize that there's something grander about Videodrome and something uh, more sinister than even just, like, a television something that speaks to the like the some sort of like clockwork orange s like human statement about how your psychology is affected by a constant oversaturation of violence um and how that applies to society but then i think in the third act it kind of spins out a little as far as like wrapping up those narrative points of intersection and engagement and i think it oh it's ultimately a movie i, I really like but i think is maybe a little bit further down in his, his catalog uh, but I do think it introduces some really interesting, like, psychological and, like, media-based ideas that, even if it doesn't see them through all the way to the end, are thought-provoking. I found the coolest aspects of the movie, uh, practical effects, so friggin' cool. Um, and really, really fun to, to, I mean, grotesque, but, uh, <laughs> like, also really cool uh, to watch. Um, yeah, and the, the physical transformation of James Wood's character. Because he he doesn't, as far as the transformation of a character, he doesn't change. Like, there's elements of him understanding what's going on around him, but maybe, maybe not. I didn't see character, a character arc or change. Feel free to, to differ one. with me. Already <laughs> kind of opening is not yeah. a character I really care much about yeah. but I think physical transformation is an interesting represent now now disagree with me like tell me yeah. if you think that he changes no like, I I fully agree with that assessment I think Dave what were you gonna say I was just gonna say I feel like there is a moment of like internal recognition that he 
because of like facilitating or, or as he thinks facilitating videodrome or facilitating similar like easy access to like sexualized violence mm. um as entertainment um he comes to realize that he's entering into a world that he doesn't fully understand because of the material necessary to produce that kind of content and the kind of situations that are necessary to like snuff films and like the horrors of like human trafficking and all that. And he, I think he does kind of come to terms or confronts that in a way that he, he gains knowledge of it, but I agree. It doesn't really change his character at all. Which uh, for this movie, I mean, casting James Woods is such, is so interesting because I don't think that character is probably far off from just like the type of person James Woods is. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if that's intentional on Cronenberg's side with like recognizing like who this kind of human is, but, um, you know, people like even kind of make fun of him throughout the film. Like, it's very clear like Debbie Harry is just using him for sex and she's like into way like, kinkier stuff than he is and he's like trying to act like he's cool with it but really he just wants to like sell this to other people um mm. and when he's actually confronted with it like in person it's kind of like icky like you know when she has like scars from another dude on her and stuff mm -hmm. he's like immediately like what the fuck um and i like that she like never kind of pays much attention to that and is like okay like whatever dude like you're just another another one of these guys that I'm like hooking up with for for fun. But um, behind the scenes, like uh, there's a couple interesting stories that I really like, which I think I talked about maybe in my article. One of them being um, the slit, as they call it, that James Woods has in his stomach, which uh, very much looks like uh, a part of the female anatomy. So um, you know, oftentimes, like he sticks his gun in there early on, and then other people start putting videotapes in there, <laughs> and so like he starts being like pretty consistently like violated by this larger organization that's trying to control him with his body mm -hmm. um and so like he had to wear this giant like prosthetic thing for a lot of the filming and complained about it and at one point um he, he and debbie harry were talking and he was like walking around with it and he's like well i'm now like the bearer of the slit and her response was join the club like, this is what we fucking deal with all the time. Um, and then the scene where he also puts that big kind of, like, 3D, like, looking That's helmet on. So cool. It's so cool. I love how that looks. Um, mm. But ultimately, I think it ends up being Cronenberg that wears it because James Woods was, like, too terrified that he was going to get, like, electrocuted in it or something mm -hmm. bad was going to happen. Um, and so I feel like James Woods on set is not very different from, like, Max Wren, who is, like, a little too timid to actually be involved in this stuff, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah. He's a little bitch that hides behind uh, the internet. He's, like, one of those trolls. He's on Twitter. Yeah. Being an asshole. So that, like... Tori, the way that you're describing James Woods now is like everyone has like been knowing about how disgusting he is. Yeah. Is that true? Like I don't really know much of his like trajectory. I think it was maybe like a thing when this movie came out that he was just like he was probably like you know with with dudes that have this thorough history of that kind of behavior it probably like emanated, but I don't think it was like an established thing yet in the sense that it is now with like people calling attention to those things actively on the internet and so on. So. I, it's hard to say. I, I really don't know. 
Yeah, much like Brian Oblivion, now we just get James Woods on Twitter and we get to see like all of the <laughs> lists of shit that said over time. Um, but uh, but yeah, like he's such a fascinating character. I really like Brian Oblivion and Bianca Oblivion as well as characters um, because like they're what they're doing isn't like totally flushed out, but it seems to be more of an acceptance of like how these this like interaction with technology affects you, but it seems to be for more of a point of human beings as individuals can evolve to like the next phase of like humanity by incorporating themselves with like technology and TV, which is like an idea that Cronenberg deals more and more with throughout like other movies as well. Um, but I think that idea is like really fascinating and how like Brian Oblivion also like is dead in the movie, but like lives through these videotapes that his daughter is just able to like dole out when she needs to have her dad have like an appearance on TV. It's almost like an early like AI theory where like a, a mm -hmm. personality or, or like someone's collective memory can be transplanted into a machine and they can like infinitely exist, but instead it's VHS tapes. I know it's fascinating. And he has another movie, which I haven't watched yet, uh, fuck, uh, called Existens. And I think it's kind of a similar idea, but it's with video games. That's what Jude Law. Yeah, that's what Jude that's Law. That's been on my to watch list for a while. I know, I think uh, I think my next Cronenberg that I'm gonna do is uh, Dead Ringers, which is really good. Um, but yeah, Existence I'm interested in too, just because um, there's a there's a horror podcast I was listening to and a woman was talking about showing Videodrome to her class and how the kids couldn't really connect to it. And even though Existence isn't necessarily thought to be as good of a movie, they connected with that more because it was with the updated technology of like video games. Mm. Um, so it is kind of interesting. Like, I mean, we're all people who like grew up with VHSs. It is interesting. Like, Connor, you were saying like, this could be the same movie if you did it with like cell phones and stuff like that. Like, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in like what this would potentially be like for like younger folks to watch who like don't even really know what VHSs are. Um, yeah. The replicate, like I feel like the replication of like inserting things into the slit. I mean, that's what you're doing with the VHS, putting it into the, you know, into the TV. Mm -hmm. I feel like if this was redone, there wouldn't be this tactile, yeah. practical yeah, element of it. Like, There's actually something I was thinking about today while watching it is like, all these, um, all the TVs in this movies are so like big and boxy. So like, mm -hmm. how do you make this movie that like hypersexualizes the inanimate object of a television when we're used to flat screens? It's like, <laughs> it's every, yeah, it's I just know. Like, it doesn't translate. And there's so much good like visual, like practical effects in this movie and a lot of like bar body horror stuff that I really like, like the, you know, phallic gun that eventually becomes a part of James Woods. But um, one of my favorite parts is the, the TV scene when you just see it like breathing and moaning and then like the screen like expands out and he kind of like puts his head in it like he's like between her boobs or something, which I, is such a weird visual, but like every time I see that I'm like, man, what a crazy contraption to put together for this movie. I think it looks like so cool. Um, and then there's also like a character who I love in this movie that I want to give a shout out to. Uh, the uh, actor's name is Peter Dvorsky. And he is the guy that uh, 
works with um, James Wood's character. Mm -hmm. He keeps calling it Patron the whole time. He's so good, and he's like this little character actor who hasn't really been in much. He actually had a bit role in the Dead Zone as uh, I think the reporter at the beginning uh, that gets like really freaked out when he like knows all this information about him. But he's so solid and funny in this movie and I like totally enjoy him as just kind of this like pirate stoner character. But even then when you find out he's a part of like the Videodrome like giant entity um, and he has this idea about how, you know, television and specifically like all of this like porn and like torture stuff that people keep watching is like eroding society is like so fascinating. I really love that. I really enjoyed the TV interview scene toward the beginning. Oh yeah. I got kind of um, Tom Cruise and Edge of Tomorrow vibes of sort of like the guy, like the front guy in front of this, but he's really, as we talked about before, like backs down from like any actual like engagement yeah. in what he's discussing. And he's just so horrible in that interview, like asking her out. Uh, but I think, you know, I think that scene has, like, the crux of the movie, the theme of, like, is it better to have our sins packaged and contained, mm -hmm. or is it better to never think of them and to ignore yeah. them and to let them mm -hmm. just manifest randomly? And I love, like, yeah, like, the very, like, first, like, 15, 20 minutes, they do such a good job of just, like, letting you know who this dude is. Um, like, even when he, like, wakes up and he's eating cold pizza and getting, like, pizza grease and sauce on, like, the softcore porn, like, stills that he's, like, supposed to, like, watch later on that day, I'm like, this guy's just, like, so icky, but, like, surrounds himself with these, like, more, um, I guess kind of, like, sexualized women who, like, kind of take care of him, um, he goes into these different meetings, like, with people who are pitching him stuff for the, uh, Civic TV station, and, like, because it's like softcore porn or it's specifically focused on like female pleasure. He's like not interested in it at all, which I think is another interesting aspect of this too, where it's like, he does not give a fuck about like women, like having like any sort of pleasure in these moments. He just wants to watch like Videodrome and straight up torture and like show that to folks. And then um, I had like another point that kind of went along with that too, but yeah, I just think, like, the handling of, like, sex and making it also, like, very divorced from violence, like, the video drum scenes, we don't really see aspects of, like, rape or anything, which I really appreciated, and I felt like they still made that bigger point about these, like, kind of problematic things that people watch without actually having to show you, like, those scenes um, was really beneficial. And then, Christine, you mentioned, like, does he change at the end? And, like, he does kind of confront these ideas, but, like, ultimately, like, it, you know, it doesn't seem like he cares about, like, making the world a better place and really getting rid of Videodrome to help, like, the larger population. It's more like, oh, like, he got, like, fucked over by this, like, group of people, and so, like, now he's gonna go and, like, shoot him up and stuff, because Bianca Oblivion, like, got him too, which is also kind of fascinating. Um, and he repeatedly says it's like all about the money. It's all about packaging yeah. it and selling it. Yep. He like yeah. He doesn't like, doesn't care about much else except for that. Um, so yeah, there's like really no not, not hiding like what a piece of shit this guy is, uh, which is like one of my favorite aspects of this for sure. I feel like if they were to reboot this movie, it would be one of those found footage Skype movies where he's like going into uh. the dark web, <laughs> <laughs> unfriended. Yeah. One of the worst films I've ever seen. Uh, that that movie that came out recently uh, that's on Shudder was actually pretty good. The, the uh, one that's only like an hour long. Was that Searching with John Cho? 
No, it's a, it was the one that they made during COVID. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like these girls trying to do a seance on like video chat with each other. And then like they fuck up and there's like a demon attacking them. And it kind of has like a paranormal activity vibe, but like they made it all during COVID and like they use a lot of stuff like, um, you know, when we do like the face masks with our phone and everything, they like have a moment where someone has their phone out and they're looking for something and then you just see the mask attached to something that's not there. It's like actually kind of fucking chilling where I was like, oh, like they did a pretty good job with this. But yeah, for the most part, that shit like does not work at all. <laughs> Unfriended is super bad, except I do low-key want to see the second one, the uh, the dark web. Yeah, it's better, but it's still really bad. So bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that's like most of my, my thoughts. I could like do a deep dive on this movie, like constantly. I love this so much, but uh, does anyone else have any like final thoughts about this or, or anything before we kind of wrap up here? Definitely made me want to watch The Fly has also been on my list, yeah. another Cronenberg movie. So yeah. this is sort of, so this great. feels like the ignition to kind of jumping into that. Yeah, and I'd be stoked to talk about like more Cronenberg with you guys too. The Fly is so good. I really loved that. Crash is amazing, which I just watched uh, again the other day to write my piece on it. And uh, that stars, um, oh, what's his face, um, from The Office uh, in the last season, Robert California. I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. James Spader. James Spader, who, like, another person that's, like, such a weird, like, sexual dude. So he's, I feel like, like James Spader and James Woods. I mean, I know they're different people, but, yeah. like, I feel like they are in wrapped up in my mind in the same yeah. <laughs> older male actor genre. Spader, Spader is the guy where like, you know, James Woods is like, ew, I don't want to actually do any of this. James Spader is like, yeah, let's fucking do it. <laughs> like, let's take our clothes off and get the shit done. Uh, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, thank you guys for watching it. I'm excited that I finally got to talk about a Cronenberg with you all. It's been, I'm surprised I haven't uh, picked one before this. So, I would very highly recommend the uh, Cinema 76 article. If you folks haven't checked it out, it's a really great uh, meditation on this film's uh, themes as concerns gender and sexuality, as we discussed. So uh, definitely worth a, worth a read and a great one by Tori. Thanks. Hey, Tori. <laughs> uh, so who's next? What's the next year? 86? Was that it? 85? 85, 85 with, with Clue. <laughs> um, yeah, a double feature. <laughs> we'll we'll roll right into uh, 1985's gem, Clue, which I'm assuming was this anyone's first time watching Clue? Okay. Aaron had never seen it before, so I was excited to watch it with him. So That's that a cool. fun like yeah. watch with someone else whose first time it is. Um, so yeah, Clue. Written and directed uh, by Jonathan Lynn, based on initial production ideas, John Landis. Jonathan Lynn did My Cousin Vinny. John Landis was part of like Animal House and some other like maybe National Lampoon movies. Um, famously starring Tim Curry as the butler. Uh, and then a bunch of other big names from that era, eight, 80s, early 90s, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Leslie Ann Warren, who, Sam and I were talking about this a couple days ago. In my mind, always, Miss Scarlet was Susan Sarandon. Me too! <laughs> like, this woman who is not Susan Sarandon, which is discrediting Leslie Ann Warren's yeah. film career. She is a 
distinct person and has a whole body of work. But in my mind, it was always like Susan Sarandon. Um, Martin Mole, Eileen Brennan, and Michael McKean. So I'm sure most listeners are seen Clue, but just as a ref refresher, uh, it's a 1950s era whodunit based on the board 1940s board game Clue. And so six strangers are invited to a big mansion um, that, and greeted by the mansion's butler, played by Tim Curry, and uh, given pseudonyms like in the game. And uh, then a seventh guest arrives, Mr. Body, who turns out is blackmailing all of these guests for various reasons. And uh, but Mr. Body is ultimately killed by someone in the house. And then essentially more people die over the course of the movie as they're trying to figure out who killed Mr. Body. The movie has three different endings, which I learned, and maybe this is just already obvious and I didn't know. I didn't realize that the theatrical release of this movie only included one ending, one of the three endings. And I think that is a really important part of the conversation of maybe why this movie was such a flop when it was released and was critically panned because every time I've watched this movie it always is in the home release with three endings all stacked at the end um and that is the clue that I am always have always been familiar with um I can't imagine so can like a modern I was thinking like a MCU movie like if a Marvel movie had like three different endings across the whole country or the world like people would just like lose their minds and freak out. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to think, and it got me thinking a little bit about like, this was, the three endings was criticized as being mere gimmick and not really contributing anything to the narrative or the mystery of the plot. Um, and honestly, I think if I were to go to see this movie when it was released and just have one ending, I'd, I think it would be not, and it, as enjoyable as the three endings end up being. And I think it would diminish from, from like one of the points of the movie, which we can kind of go into later. But um, but thinking about the Netflix movie where you can choose your own adventure and like thinking about different uh, gimmicks that I think have debate, been debated recently. Um, and have did any of you guys watch that Netflix choose your own no. adventure? Mm -hmm. The Black Mirror Bandersnatch one? The Black Mirror, thank you, thank you, thank you. So that, there, there were a few Netflix Choose Your Own Adventure, like, kids shows that Charlie Brooker, who run, who, like, is the creative director of Black, you know, showrunner of Black Mirror, went to Netflix to this idea. Netflix, they both agreed it's not quite ready yet, made, like, five kids shows to test out the idea, and then finally made Bandersnatch. Um, so it was just kind of interesting of like Netflix made all these kids shows so that way Charlie Brooker could do Bandersnatch, uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, Black Mirror. So yeah, I feel like things like that, it's just fun plays on the possibility of like different avenues of plot lines and movies and things like that. Um, but initially when Clue was released, a lot of critics were like, three alternative endings in theaters. It's just a ploy to get people to go to see it and it's just gimmickry. Um, but I'd be very, uh, as we talk a little bit more about I mean, that's the, the, point of the, the plot game. and the performances. Yeah, yeah. And anyone um, can be the killer, so like, yeah. Um, so yeah, what are people's relationships with Clue? What was it like to rewatch it? I rewatched it for the first time a couple months ago with friend of the show, Alana. 
uh, we did a double feature of Clue, which was my first time ever seeing it just a few months ago. Oh, and Knives, recently. And, okay. And Knives Out. We did Clue and Knives Out back to back. Um, mm. and that was her first time seeing Knives Out, my first time seeing Clue. So that was kind of a fun, uh, that was a really good double feature pairing. So it was nice kind of coming back a second time, um, knowing where it's headed, kind of like with Knives Out and being able to appreciate all the details that have just been baked into it from the start. I would add that uh, I was thinking about Knives Out also. Um, when Knives Out came out, <clears throat> what was that last year, correct? Um, so I, and I thought, I thought it was okay and like thought maybe it just wasn't handled the way that I expected with like such a big ensemble cast and like an opportunity for so much of their interaction, which we don't get as much of as I'd hoped for in that movie. Um, then then going back to Clue and thinking like, like oh, Clue's an example of that that I really love. I should go back and watch that. And then this gave us an opportunity to. And rewatching Clue, I was like, oh, I do like this, maybe more than Knives Out. But I also am realizing that whodunits aren't really my bag, maybe. And that seems to be a theme with these movies. Because like recent, I mean, you know, there's a Murder on the Orient Express, which like, you know, there's, I forget what year the, the first version of that came out, but then there was the one a couple years ago where the whole thing was this huge ensemble cast. And now they're doing Death on the Nile, I think too. And it's like really similar. So like, it's, it's interesting that specifically this genre seems to be like, oh, we have to get like as many people involved to be like, who could have thought, like, it could be any of these, like, 10 to 15 individuals that we, like, have in this. Um, but, yeah, like, Clue, Clue's a lot of fun. I feel like I remember it used to be on, like, Comedy Central a lot, so I used to, like, see bits of it here and there. Um, I love that board game. I think it's so much fun. So, like, the concept of, like, doing it as a movie was fun for me, too. Um, you know, tons of like 80s, like fun actors, Madeline Kahn and uh, Tim Curry are both like so phenomenal in this movie. Um, and, and smart to do it as like a, you know, an Agatha Christie like story too. I think like, you know, that probably is the way you tell that. And I guess this is probably one of the more successful like uh, board game uh, movies because that's a thing that happens now. So. Is it the only success, like, good one, I wonder? It's the first one. Because there's Battleship, the right? The second that one was... was Battleship, and that was a flop. And there is something... Even though we all worked with someone who, lo loves, <laughs> who loves that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's another one I'm forgetting about, too, that they did, but I can't remember. Let me, let me see the Google machine. Yeah. Just wait for um, Checkers the movie. Um, I want to uh, get your thoughts, Sam. I just want to quickly respond to something about the whodunit as a genre. Um, I love that genre. I love, okay. like, with my parents have always watched all that, like, British mystery series. I eat that shit up. I would not say this movie is successful as a whodunit. I've seen this movie multiple times. Not as many as like a diehard fan, but I have no fucking idea what's going on. Like the plot makes no sense. I would say Knives Out was more successful in bringing viewers along um, um, like the long lines of a mystery that had some tr like twists and turns that, that felt fresh, that felt interesting. But I think I would agree with Dave where the ensemble cast, I don't think was given as much room as they could have to breathe, to like play up their skills and their talents as individual performers. But I think 
for the sake of focusing the viewer on the sort of forward thrust of the mystery and of like yeah that makes sense having reveals i'm curious sam you've seen clue before what's your relationship with this movie yeah um this is one of the funniest movies i've ever seen it really really taps into my sense of humor just like the complete absurdity of some of the things that happen like i don't really need like a cohesive plot like i don't i didn't like care that i couldn't figure out like the who done it because you know it's just like ridiculous but like I, I've, there were parts that, like, I was literally holding my side because I was laughing so hard, and, like, that doesn't happen often with me, like, you know, I don't like comedy movies, we know this, so I think, like, that is a, in a, a feat of its own. Yeah, like, I, I think, again, like, I know that, I know people who are diehard fans could, could, like, make, like, say most of the lines in the movie. And one of the really wonderful things about it is it's so quotable. Um, but I think for me, watching this movie is just like watching a bunch of really funny people kind of just doing their own thing mm -hmm. <laughs> in different rooms. Yeah. And like in my notes, I was like, there really is no tension at all. Like, I really don't care what's happening. What I care about is the way that, like, the physical comedy involved um, yeah. and watching each performer's expression, reacting to things. Like, just how many scenes are there? Six people running up and down a bunch of stairs or falling on one another. And I was, like, trying to think of, like, recent comedies that aren't like hangover movies, like mm -hmm. the hangover sort of franchise in which like physical comedy like that is really like. I know. I mean. Melissa McCarthy still trades in that quite a bit. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 a hundred percent. I think, yeah, like definitely. Oh, and this connects, this is a really random side note. I think I mentioned this on the podcast, but a terrible, terrible movie that I think showcases the skills of someone like Lauren Lapkus, or Laura Lapkus, Laura, it's Lauren Laura, uh, great physical comedian. Uh, Dave would differ. <laughs> oh no, I was just trying to remember the name. Sorry, go ahead. It's um, The Wrong Missy. I feel like oh, right. she is a rising star that I hope she's, will get she's a very platform funny. to she's, like, she's do the, other things. Yeah, she's the only worthwhile part of that movie by... I don't think that movie mile. is worth watching, but I would also look to her as like an example of like contemporary comedians that like lean into kind of like physical comedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's fair. But yeah, so like watching Tim Curry uh, as Wadsworth, <laughs> the butler, uh, running around, watching the sweat globules on his face. Like, I don't think I ever registered how sweaty he gets in those scenes. <laughs> and I'm sure that's real sweat of like him just like giving it his all in every performance. Yeah. Um, Christine, he's not a comedian, but a person I thought of with this, because I was just talking about this movie the other day, is Chris Pine. Uh, because I love uh, Star Trek, like the, uh, the 2009 movie. And there's this scene where he's getting beat up in a bar and the, just like how he's getting tossed around in that scene and like being kind of quippy and funny. Like Garrett and I were talking about it and he was like, 
this guy like he feels like uh like harrison ford or something the way he mm. kind of just gets like tossed around and thrown around and it's like an action movie but like it is inherently funny the way it's happening because like there are kind of like getting beat up in these moments and stuff and so like that like that's a person i think of a lot when i just think of these like kind of bigger comedy things because i like love that moment so much and I do think it's like inherently funny just the way he's thrown about like the the set it's yeah a lot of characters are thrown about and there's yeah. sort of this haphazard nature <laughs> to the way everyone and I'm like I really enjoyed watching Knives Out it was a wonderful go to the theater like whodunit experience but I don't think that that movie would like lean into like gro like getting actors looking gross or like yeah. looking really sweat. Everyone looked great in that movie. They were dressed well and like nobody was breaking a sweat. Um, uh, Chris Evans was thrown up on and then in the very next scene he looked totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> well, I think that's so there is this, throw up. This is this movie's different too because it's not like it's just a who done it. It's like the comedy take on the who done it. Yes, right. Yes. Like there is that meta. Yeah, like, like, like Dave, yeah. like Dave made, like Dave made that great point where it feels like it's ghostwritten by Mel Brooks, and this feels so Mel Brooksy to me when I see this movie because like that was kind of like you know a thing he did with a lot of his movies like the goofy cowboy movie, the goofy like Universal Monsters movie, like all of that stuff. So it's got that extra layer. It also just smacks of his work in the sense of like, there's multiple, uh, yeah, there's a lot of busty women in this movie. <laughs> and like, there's also just a lot of like lines that this smack of like kind of Mel Brooks timing of like, uh, one of my favorites is, uh, why is the car stopped? It's frightened. Like that's that's like right out of the Brooks playbook, which is great. But it turns out it's mostly ghostwritten by John Landis, who's a piece of shit. <laughs> I was confused about the evolution of the screenplay. Like I know that Landis wanted Tom Stoppard to write it, mm -hmm. and like Anthony Perkins was like potentially going to be involved. Oh, like, Anthony the Perkins billing... would have been so funny trying to do this movie. Yeah, and then but the like. I guess the ultimate billing was the screenplay, Jonathan Lynn. Like, I, yeah, I guess it, a lot of hands, pat, like this passed through a lot of hands. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe is a reason why it doesn't really make sense <laughs> or like why I, they're, go ahead, Dave. Uh, no, I was just gonna add that like the movie has me, it's pretty much sold on like the comedy and like the conceit and everything up until the end when it's like, it is really funny in the sense that Tim Curry gives us like, you know, tour de force performance where he's, as we said, like throwing himself around the room, really committing to it and sweating. And Tim Curry is a gem to watch in everything. But it does become a little exhausting when you watch the cut with all three endings because you realize that with each of these individual endings, as separate as they are, none of them are really anything that we get a sense of until it's literally explained to us. Like you don't, you, this movie doesn't allow you to connect those clues until it says what it was, mm -hmm. which I found to be a little tedious and maybe a little frustrating, but it's kind of like way evened out by and balanced by the pathos and like humor of, uh, of Curry. But it, it, it's kind of like a whodunit that cheats in the sense that it's like, oh, this is what you were supposed to have figured out all along, even though we didn't really in any way highlight the importance of those things or even show a lot of it? Oh, a hundred percent. Like <laughs> well, it, it end... fails the like exciting twisty plot. But do you mm -hmm. think that that was bad writing or do you think that was 
playing into the parody of the formula of a whodunit. That's hard to say because, like, yeah, if it if it's bad writing, it's just bad writing. But if it's if it is a trope, then it's also a trope that feels a little unfulfilling, given that we spent so much time building toward it. It's like kind of like a whodunit isn't one of those things where you can make a parody without it also being that in a satisfying way. So I think that takes from it a little bit, but it's, it's weighed a, enough by the comedy that I think it's not a problem, but it is, as a whodunit, a bit of a failure, maybe. Yeah. Any other folks have thoughts about like what it would mean to watch the movie with one ending versus watching all three like stacked together at the end? I like that. And I also like that like, yeah, like they all seem kind of nonsensical. I think we were watching it and like, we're like, the second one like definitely feels like a stretch for me. Like Communism was a red herring. But then that's like a thing they say in every single one. Like the capitalist was always the bad guy. And so I was kind of like, I'm fine with that. That's kind of great. <laughs> but I'm sorry, the second, the second one, yeah. Yeah, it was very nonsensical, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fine. I, I know that like in my head, I'm someone that watches movies and wants to try to figure it out. And this is one of those movies where I have to just be like, that's like not really what I'm supposed to do. I'm like yeah. never actually gonna figure it out. So I guess I just have to like step back and enjoy it. But like, yeah, like if you're someone that watches like whodunit to try to like put all the pieces together in your head, like this is not a movie where you're gonna get enough information to ever be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would have been pretty unsatisfied if I had seen, like, endings one and two. Um, because, like, the third ending is, like, I, I would say is, like, clearly the strongest ending if you're, like, taking the movie as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, it, it definitely makes the most sense. So, like, I think, I don't know, I wonder what we would be saying if that was the only ending, if we would be having yeah. these problems of, like, things don't connect. Um, but, Dave, like, I totally agree with how exhausting it was at one point. And I, I actually, le- uh, like, let out a sigh of relief when we didn't have to go through some of that stuff again in, like, the second and the third one. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> but not to take anything away from Tim Curry's performance. And that last line in the third ending of just... <laughs> That it's got a so huge funny. laugh in the house. And just, what are you going to do now? I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. <laughs> End of movie. Stop, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think for me, watching all of them stacked, I totally agree, gets exhausting. I sort of read it as it is acknowledging that most whodunits are essentially fabric, unless it is an extremely meticulously put together and well-crafted yeah the stock genre is just like well they're gonna explain it to me in the end Mm -hmm. I can just enjoy the set pieces and the costumes and like you know and I think that that those stacked ends reinforce kind of the ridiculousness of the formula um Mm -hmm. as exhausting as it as it probably is (laughs) um are there favorite scenes favorite characters quotes that come to mind I love the matchstick scene when they have to decide who's going to go through the house. And it's just, for whatever reason, like, I, for, they just, it's such a tight shot. They're in the kitchen, but all of them are just like, <laughs> packed in like sardines, like trying to compare the different sizes of the matchsticks. Like little moments like that are throughout the entire movie. But that, it's just like, I think a great example of just using the camera and like setting up a scene is like, that is, can be physical comedy too in and of itself. Like what constraints are you putting on the box that we're watching that the audience is going to watch? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I apologize, Connor and Christine, you've heard this before, but um, the part I liked the most was like, it's totally random and absurd, but it's when the um, telegram woman shows up <laughs> and like, song and dance and then immediately gets shot. <laughs> I, I like had to stop it because I was laughing so hard to be immediately followed up by Tim Curry turning a doorknob and it turns on a shower. Like it's so ridiculous, but so funny. And that's where pacing is excellent because yeah. before then, all characters that we've met at least have like five to 10 minutes of screen time where you're like, you get a sense a little bit of like what this new character is, how they're going to complicate the plot. And then you just get dancing telegram. You're like, nope, <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> we've got enough characters as it is, bang. Like, done. <laughs> I really love, um, there's two parts I love. One of them is uh, when I think they find Mr. Body for the second time. And there's the, um, the candlestick sitting above the bathroom for a really long time. And I was like, Karen and I were both just like, something's gonna happen with that right and it took a while then like finally it just like hit someone right on the head I was like there we go like it was just like a funny thing where I'm like oh I don't know if I'm supposed to notice that there and that's like weird right and so then when it like eventually gets used for a gag it's so good um and then I just thought like Tim Curry and Madeline Kahn like played off each other really well um she's just such a gem all the time mm. I love her and young Frankenstein mm. um but like at one point he's going back up the stairs and he grabs her to like bring her up for a moment and immediately lets her go. And she just like lays flat on the <laughs> stairs and doesn't bother moving. And it was so funny. <laughs> I am so happy you highlighted that scene. <laughs> oh my God. And just her lingering there face down on the carpet. <laughs> Like this is the most. This is the saddest, most hilarious thing. <laughs> like, I fucking give up. Whatever. <laughs> uh, I guess this one real moment that stood out for me is pretty hilarious. Among a lot of really great moments in this movie, this is a really funny movie. Um, it would just be uh, Tim Curry's defensive response about the FBI call. It's just uh, of course I have Jay yes. Of course I have Jay Edgar Hoover's number in my phone. Everyone does. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like the movie's attempt at like being sort of like 1950s relevant, but like so not, I don't know. It's just like a great, which was another question that came to mind, which I think will be eventually a nice bridge to the next movie we'll talk about, but kind of like the 80s obsession with like 1940s and 50s and like, yeah. well, I mean, probably every decade has that obsession, but I feel like a narrative thread to actually two other movies that we'll talk about, um, which is kind of interesting, like what the 80s, like what the 40s or 50s really kind of like meant in the 80s. But um, I think, do there any other scenes that folks wanted to highlight or quote or great fave? The dog poop's a great running gag. Oh, yeah. the stinky, yeah, the stinky put. Yeah, 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 yeah. I also it's like, do everyone's love... been there. <laughs> just mm, stepping through shit, can't get rid uh, of it. When the police officer's looking around and everyone's like set up the room so they're like making out with like dead bodies and stuff. And then like Curry doesn't know what's going on. And he's like, it's a free country, it's fine. He's like, I didn't know it was that, that free. free. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think some great, I mean, most of the quotes I was writing down 
uh, came from Adeline Kahn. Uh, it's a matter of life or, after death. After his death, I had a life. And husband, I mean, husbands should be like Kleenex, soft, strong, and disposable. Like if I was a black widow, she's the black widow I would want to be, you know? <laughs> and then the classic flames, flames on the side of my yes. face. <laughs> Which I, is improvised. Yeah, I learned recently that, um, that yeah, she just rolled with it. So um, I think ultimately for me upon re I feel like a big thing that stood out to me upon rewatch was for me, this movie was basically about trying to throw a murder mystery party and it going wildly unsuccessful, like becoming wildly unsuccessful. All I could watch was Tim Curry as the party host, trying to make people to like, getting people to stick to their roles, figure stuff out and put pieces together and have fun at the same. It was like, it was like the scenario I have been in with my friends trying to throw a murder mystery party, orchestrating everything, pushing people into rooms, <laughs> imposing forced fun on a group <laughs> of people. And I was like, Tim Curry, I've been there. I can feel your pain of like trying to make something fun and exciting. And it just not, like people just not going along with it and just not having any fun. <laughs> so that was my big takeaway. Um, the movie, while parodying the whodunit, is also a commentary on the forced fun of hosting a whodunit, I mean, a murder mystery party, <laughs> and the sweat that is involved of trying to get people in the right place to see the clue at just the right time. Uh, other shout outs, costumes are great. And this is Peacock and her hats and her cost, like, um, just, yeah, I think the set designs are great. Any last thoughts about clue or big takeaways that you guys wanted to, to mention? It's a fun one. It's a fun one, yeah. Um, well, over the top, Sam. Over the top. I'm very excited about this conversation. Um, Christine, did you want to throw it again, or should I just pick up? You just go for it. Wait, and just... wait, transition three. <laughs> transition three. This is option C. <laughs> I gave a wrong option A, a mediocre option B, and this is. <laughs> Okay, so we are now in 1987 with my pick, Over the Top. So Over the Top, directed by Menachem Galan, screenplay written by Sylvester Stallone and Sterling Siliphant. Um, stars Sylvester Stallone as Lincoln Hawk, David Mendal as Michael Lincoln's son, and other moderately recognizable folks, including several professional arm wrestlers. Mm. And a professional wrestler. Yeah, a yeah. A body wrestler, I guess, as he's, he would be known then. Yeah, he eventually <laughs> becomes like a, um, a professional, like, wrestler. He wasn't at the time, but he does become it. Are you um, talking about Terry Funk? I Terry no Funk was a professional wrestler by that. At any rate, oh, good No, back. Scott something. Okay. Um, anyway, so this movie had a budget of $25 million, but only made $16 million between the United States and Canada. So this movie is also considered a flop, which I find very interesting that our three so far have bombed. Um, <laughs> and yet we all love these movies. So um, clearly they didn't know what was up in the uh, 80s with these movies. 
Um, yeah, so critics panned over the top when it was released, and folks continued to write, like, really nasty reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm just like, are you watching the same movie that I am? Um, but, so, over the top, what is it? Why did I mention professional arm wrestlers? <laughs> Good question. Um, so, over the top follows Lincoln Hawk, Sylvester Sloan, a long-haul truck driver on his journey to reconnect with his son, Michael. We're not given too much detail as to why Hawk left his wife, Christina, but it's clear that Hawk has been absent for almost, if not all, of Michael's life. Christina, terminally ill with heart disease, asks Hawk as essentially her dying wish for him to bond and make amends with Michael. We watch as the two grow to understand and love one another, all while the backdrop of professional arm wrestling is happening. Uh, it's clear that Hawk doesn't have much to his name, and if he wants to create like a, a real life with the son, he needs to find money and find it quick. So Hawk trains and trains for the national arm wrestling competition in Vegas, which, spoiler, he wins! <laughs> Um, so, did anyone watch this for the first time? Uh, oh my god, okay! All but me again! <laughs> all but you again! All right, so, um, newcomers, like, what are your, what are your thoughts about this movie? I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Um, I loved how I was just dropped into this world with not a whole lot of explanation of like the larger arm wrestling world, just like this is Hawk, this is his life. Uh, this is the journey we're gonna go on with him and his son. And I just took it all as it came. Um, I, I think I had mentioned this, I know I had mentioned this to Sam and I think while we were texting or, or like this group was texting earlier, but like I never, really have found Sylvester Stallone all that alluring in like other movies like in the you know Rocky franchise stuff like that this movie I was like I'm I'm digging it what it, it's, it's the suspenders I swear the, I think it, it it's the, like soft talking mm. and the like subdued performance I was mm. just like tell me more you know and I he would tell me more and I wouldn't understand it because the sound mixing was so bad <laughs> But I, I, I thought this was a gem, a wonderful road movie with some arm wrestling. I mean, this movie felt like quintessential, like 80s Americana, like this is what like make America great again, people want the world to be like kind of thing. Like even the philosophy he's like giving his son is just so like, this conservative weird mindset, which I think is really fascinating. Um, but like, I I was excited for just like, what a ridiculous premise this movie has. Like, cause I remember seeing just like the clips of like the arm wrestling and like the faces, but I was most surprised by how legitimately earnest this movie was. Um, like the stuff with him and his son is like legitimately heartwarming and like really sweet at moments and like almost got me choked up at times and I was like for sure not prepared for that. Um, that being said, there were also moments that I thought were so funny. I squealed out loud like several times. Um, specifically some of the shit with just the competition at the end, which <laughs> I... I am so excited to talk about. I'm mad that I don't have a trucker hat that I can turn around because there's a there's a quote 
that like we need to dissect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like want it tattooed on my face, you know, it's just perfect. Right whole- where like the trucker hat would go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I think the father-son relationship was my favorite part of the movie. Uh, Sam, in your notes, you put the scene where he teaches his kid how to drive the truck. Um, when the kid's first introduced and you meet, he just like graduated from like military prep school. He's like 10 years old, but there's like a graduation ceremony. <laughs> um, and so his dad like picks him up to do a cross country trip, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm not, I just watched Phantom Menace not too long before watching this movie. So I was like, not another like little kid movie, but he has such a different and specific energy that plays so well against what Stallone's bringing. The casting's um, great. They look alike too. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it is incredibly reckless that you're letting your son drive the tractor trailer. Probably can't even touch the pedals. Um, and we can talk more about that scene, definitely. Uh, but I think, Especially what that leads up to later. Right. <laughs> and so I, was like, I think their relationship was really, that was such a smart writing decision to put that at the heart of the movie. And I think that's what helps us be so incredibly earnest instead of like, dude bar arm wrestling extravaganza which might also could be a good movie too would have been fine with that that's what i expected but this was like an added bonus <laughs> well thanks how about you dave well i think without the uh the heart of the uh the father-son dynamic which is explored interestingly and i think uh yeah it has some it has some really uh dynamic components even though I feel like it's unfortunate for this kid actor because like the script demands that he's just kind of for most of the movie, he's just kind of crying and like, it doesn't really develop too much outside of like uh, the second half of the movie, which, which he comes into his own. But um, I do think it's, it's particularly funny that uh, that scene where his, his father's treating him to drive the rig because um, Stallone um, or Hawk is, is basically just like saying like, well, you're such, a, you're such a smart guy, Mikey. Why don't you go ahead and see if you can take over the truck? And then he does it. So it's kind of like, you think like Arnold's alone after like two miles would be like, oh shit, I guess you were right. But, <laughs> but um, there's, I, I think it, it rests on that so much because the other plot elements, like as far as like Robert Loja, Robert Loja hating him for like, no reason that we really get an answer to or like the the arm wrestling stuff is like, kind of just tangential until the, the third act, but like it is all kind of hinged upon Stallone's performance with this kid. And, and the two of them do have a really great chemistry for most of it. And I, I do think it really translates. Thanks. And it's also just- I needed much background on really anyone. <laughs> Cause that's not really what it's about. Yeah, it's about the, the, their emergent dynamic and like that whole situation, which I appreciate and it does, it does well. It's also just a canon, uh, a canon groups uh, film that, like, uh, if you're familiar with uh, that that cinema house at the time was like films like Bloodsport or Cobra or American Ninja, where it, or, or Cyborg, where it's just like these kind of like um, very over the top, like just sort of like conventional '80s action films that are beat by beat, like the momentum of just like an action movie without much consideration for character or growth. Uh, and this movie takes a different approach in the canon catalog, which I really appreciate. So I think it's a it did, it's a standout. Didn't they do like several Death Wish movies too? They did like yeah, I think three yeah. through like five. It was yeah. a canon movie, a defined it was term like, for 
movies that fall, action movies that fall into this genre, or were there specific movies that are referred to as canon movies? It's yeah, a production is... company that right. got it. I got think it, got it, got it. I think the owners are from Israel, maybe. Um, there's actually a documentary on them because like they made so many crazy movies. Like they made uh, Texas Chainsaw Two is yeah. a canon movie. Um, I think Hotel he like Motel Hell is a, a canon movie as well. Like tons of crazy ones. Like they even got like a older Peter Cushing and like Christopher Lee and all these dudes to make a horror movie together in like the 70s or 80s. So like. They did some, oh, there's a Masters of the Universe movie they did, which looks like ridiculous, mm -hmm. which I really want to see. So like, yeah, there's, the documentary is fascinating and there's just so many insane movies that it makes you want to watch, like over the top being one of them, like especially. Um, so something I feel like we're, we've kind of been skirting around a little bit is how untraditional this character feels for Stallone. Um, someone who is a bit more tender, soft-spoken, a little bit more emotional. And so, Christine, you and I were having this conversation about, like, is this just a masculine movie or are there hints of toxic masculinity too because i mean you know you would think in a movie with like all these professional arm wrestlers everything is like testosterone this testosterone that i i don't know and i was wondering like what you folks thought about that like who is this movie for um when does masculinity cross a line and become toxic i i thought that that would kind of be an interesting thing to explore I think there are a lot of avenues of intersection for, you know, diagnosing when masculinity veers into like toxic social behavior and like uh, reinforcing negative uh, traditional gender roles and so on. But I don't think this movie trades in that that much. I, I think it does a pretty good job of, of focusing us on, you know, these two central characters, Michael and, uh, and uh, his father Hawk and, and them both being, as we mentioned, like a little bit more softened given the archetypes that we've come to expect from like canon group films or even just 80s action films of the era. And like there, there's like a fundamental important softness and like tenderness in terms of like male to male bonding and interaction that is, um, is really pronounced. And I do think there, there, there are things that could be like associated with like toxic masculinity, like the over, um, the overzealousness and like implied violence of some of the, uh, the competitors within the professional rest, arm wrestling circuit as things go on but I, I don't think this film's guilty of too much of that but it's kind of hard to say well because the movie besides the mom who's really not in it that much and only really talks to them via telephone calls a couple times yeah the movie's devoid of women so yeah, like that kind of makes it hard to right she's in it for maybe yeah. like 10 minutes of screen time before she yeah. just kind of dies in the first half of the movie yeah well she's sort of i guess she sets in motion the plot and yeah. then sort of like received i mean it's because of her that he's getting picked up by hawk or the son is getting picked up by hawk and they end up so she kind of like sets in motion this plot and then yeah it doesn't really have much to do she's not really a person she's like a plot device you know Which i didn't really no. like yeah. have any big issues with at all I think we can assume that one guy Persona. that straight up eats a cigar is probably a toxic male. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or the guy that's drinking like motor oil before a professional arm wrestling match. In which case, like, 
I hope you do well, dude, because this is your last arm wrestling match. It's you are in trouble. So, it's just so ridiculous. It's like not in the realm of like, now, granted, there are real arm wrestlers, but like, <laughs> it's still the, the arena stadium. Like, I just, yeah, I, I don't. It's like ESPN 5 like, shit. <laughs> There's also, there's also a thing in my head where I I thought the ends when he wins would be more graphic than it was, but I think in my head I combined the arm wrestling scene from, <laughs> from the, the fly, fly with this movie, and so I was like, oh, he doesn't actually like rip this guy's arm. <laughs> David Cronenberg's over the top, where at the end he's got a gun to his head, Gooby, Gooby. <laughs> that would be a weird mashup. I was waiting for some moments like that because um, I feel like the over the topness doesn't really happen until like the end of the movie. So I was mm -hmm. like, he's so good at arm wrestling and he doesn't want to do it because he kills people when he does it. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting oh my God, for it. It would be like, like a, it would, I'm so sorry, it would be like a roadhouse moment where yeah, it's like, yeah. when I arm wrestle, I arm wrestle and then. Rips someone's throat out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> no, I was Roadhouse is a very apt comparison. To what I thought maybe like going into the movie, what it was going to be, and it was something surprisingly yeah. different. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, that would be the Cronenberg like yeah, it edition. Would be. It would just be like throat rips in every single scene. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, I wasn't disappointed, but all of a sudden I was like, oh, that scene isn't from this movie. I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to hear you guys say this because I, I, I honestly, I probably haven't seen this movie in, like, 15 years. Probably maybe, like, 20 years. Oh, wow. And so, like, I only remembered some parts of it and, um, it, like, like, vaguely and it was all kind of, like, fuzzy. Uh, but I knew, like, I had, like, this, like, deep love for it. So... I put it on and I was expecting like toxic masculinity and then I ended up falling in love with this movie because like I don't think that really at all and I have a question here like um are Hawk and Stallone healthy role models and honestly like Hawk in this movie is like so endearing and someone who's just trying to do a good job and trying to live their life and build their life up. Someone who's like clearly made some mistakes, but is trying to do the best, the only way that they know how. And like, I don't know. I, I, I have notes about like why I think this movie, this movie reminds me so much of my dad and I just see a lot of my dad in that. So, um, it made me really happy that um, this movie like is something that I can go back to and really enjoy and not feel like there's something like toxic about it. And we've also talked around like Hawk's parenting style and around the particular scene, which like I think is my favorite scene in the movie. We've mentioned it a little bit, but just to kind of put it into perspective for our, our listeners. So, um, Hawk and Michael are in the big old rig, the big 18-wheeler, and Michael is being a little asshole. I mean, he's really kind of, um, like, someone who I just want to, like, punt like a football, and, um, His dad has he... been absent for his whole life while his mother died, but... <laughs> no, 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 like, I, I totally get that, and I think, like, he is, like, right to say some of these things, but, you know, he's calling his dad dumb, and he's, like, really questioning his intelligence and integrity, and, like, I can get that, but, like, uh, also... It's a bit much. It is a bit much, yeah. and at, at one point, 
Hawk is finally like, I was irritated a mile ago. Um, so if you think that this is so easy, you do it. And so Michael gets into the, the driver's seat and he's like terrified, but he eventually gets it. And the point isn't that, oh no, like he actually can do this. Like, <laughs> no, I understand. I just think that's funny, but go ahead. <laughs> No, no, but like that, that's, you know, when I was like watching it, um, that's what I was thinking too. But then he says something, I just wanted to see you smile. And I was like, fuck you, Lincoln Hawk. That's so <laughs> great. Like, oh, that brought tears to my eyes, truly. And I think that like, it was a beautiful scene. I was waiting hey. for the kid moment. to steal like a taxi or steal a truck or do something like take those driving skills at the end to like reunite with his father. Which he does. Um, he steals the truck. He does. Yeah. Oh, um, you're right. Yes, 100% you're right. I've never seen Rocky, but I think Garrett told me that he has, like, turtles as pets in the movie. Yeah. And, like, isn't his name in the movie the names of the two turtles in Rocky? Are they? I think so. Oh, which like is kind of hilarious. Because, because that means he wrote this movie and named himself after his turtles. <laughs> <laughs> this is like sending me to the next level i i don't know man i think i there's a deep part of me that loves sylvester stallone <laughs> like stallone co-wrote this yeah, yeah wow he wrote a lot of i stuff. didn't know that mm -hmm. wow. but like christine you mentioned something too like how like kind of quiet and understated his performance is in this and i think that's one of the reasons why i like it because i didn't expect I, I haven't seen a ton of Stallone stuff, but in my head, he he was one of these big, loud, like, action dudes, but he actually, like, isn't that way in, in like, other performances, too, but, like, especially this movie, where he's pretty quiet, and he's, like, kind of sarcastic, and he kind of just, like, lets shit, like, slide by. He's got, like, a lot of zen moments where he's just, like, exhibiting so much patience for, like, the shit that's going on um which then makes it fun when he is like beating all these fucking giant dudes who are like really obnoxious at wrestling or when he just throws that guy through a like glass door at the end when he's That's... arguing with him it's it makes those moments like all the better i think because he exhibits all this patience and then is like get the fuck out of my way and that guy is uh, Terry Funk, who is a uh, a really great 80s and early 90s era professional uh -huh. WWF, then WWF, now WWE wrestler, um, who is also just a really great guy. So that's it's very cool to see him just in a movie. And then what's the grandfather, the actor? It's Robert Loja. Robert Loja. <laughs> um, he's so funny because there's a moment at the beginning in the hospital where he like visits his daughter and then he talks to her doctor and he goes if she gets any calls in the room you like let me know and Garrett was just like man it's so funny that like rich white dudes can just like say and do whatever they want like walk into a room and just like throw money at people and like and there were several moments where like he's talking to the lawyers about how he can get custody of Michael and he, they're like, there's no law that's like probably gonna allow you to get your grandson and like have legal custody. And he's just like, oh, well, isn't that what I pay you for to like bend the law or bend the rules or whatever? I was like, God damn it. <laughs> like which, white dudes in America, chill out. Which is interesting though, up until in, in the midst of trying to like retain custody rights, 
uh, Stallone is just like plowing through his property and bashing into his house with a, a goddamn semi truck and like totally oh, ruining no. his chances of this paternity case. And at the end, Robert Loja is just like, no, you're not going to go with him. You're coming with me. And like, then he sees him win an arm wrestling match and is just like, well, all right, I guess it's fine. <laughs> like, wait, what? Not. They just nod, and it's like, all that legal shit's over. You got him. <laughs> Garrett was just like, are they going to drive away? And, like, they're not going to deal with any of this stuff. They're not going to talk. And that's how it ended. Yeah, that's and they're like, great. That's exactly <laughs> how I wanted this movie to end. <laughs> I really enjoyed how it switched to, like, an office NBC sitcom style, like, interview. <laughs> Mom, that's yes. the best part. I'm so happy you brought that up. Those shots are fascinating. Why? <laughs> Why was that? Why did that happen? That I laughed so hard through that whole part. I felt like I was then watching a Christopher Guest like parody of an of an arm <laughs> wrestling competition. Like I feel like if he was responsible, he would like do this kind of like storyline, but the whole movie would be interviews with everyone. And his involved. his main enemy, the guy with like the mutton chops. When he has his interview finally, he's just like, well, I just want to cripple him. <laughs> You're like, God damn it. I just want to make sure he can never walk again or something. And it's like, oh my God. Just throwing that casually out. <laughs> That's then, all you want, sir. <laughs> and then, of course, by contrast, we get uh, Lincoln Hawk's testimony, which is uh, that- uh, Oh, I, it, have, I have it. Hold on. Oh, please, please. <laughs> all right. What I do is- I just try to take my hat, turn it around, and it's like a switch that goes on. And when the switch goes on, I feel like another person. I feel, I don't know, I feel like a truck, like a machine. <laughs> feel like and a truck. can we also talk about the uh, first place prize in this arm wrestling contest is like specifically, it's a fucking semi truck, like what? I mean, it has obviously. a hawk on it. <laughs> They call his name to like come up to the stage and it cuts to him and he's just staring at the truck. He's not paying <laughs> any attention. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, God. And it's like, is this about your son? Is this about trucks? Because you really love trucks. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> I, I will love this movie forever. <laughs> um, so... I know this movie is like a little bit out of my lane of things that like I normally watch and normally love, but I picked this movie because of what I said before, because of how much it reminds me of my dad. So um, for a long time in my childhood, my dad was a truck driver and so was my pop and my uncle. So it's like really deep in my family. And my dad would always bring me back a stuffed animal from wherever he visited. And this one I remember so clearly was like this like small uh, stuffed pink teddy bear that I loved so much and anytime he would leave I would just like have that teddy bear with me um so just like watching this just like made my heart feel full and uh my dad and I we watched this movie together a lot it, it was like the big three this one speed and <laughs> a walk to remember um <laughs> I know, very random um but I don't know how often we watched it but it must have been enough for me to remember so much of it and um 
Sly has always reminded me of my dad. Like they look alike. Um, they looked like when my dad was younger, they've also kind of aged the same, which is like really bizarre to me. Um, what's also kind of strange is um, my mom loves Sylvester Stallone. Like um, she, she's like, she thinks he's like one of the most attractive men like ever. And I'm like, oh, I see what you, you did there with my dad. Yeah. Okay, like, that makes sense. Um, but you know, this character in particular reminds me so much of my dad too. Like the, the scene where he goes to meet Michael at the military academy, he shows up, he drives his fucking ridge to, um, the military academy and he's wearing this jean shirt that has a big old bleach stain on it. And, you know, he definitely cleaned up and he, he's trying so hard. He's just so earnest about everything. It like, it breaks my heart a little bit of how earnest and he, how, how much he just wants to do a good job. He looks great in that jean on jean too. He does. I'm really happy yeah. you brought that. Just a side note, all of his costume changes are wonderful. It did make me laugh a little though when he shows up to the funeral and he's wearing a black denim shirt, <laughs> but still like bright blue yep. denim pants. <laughs> I mean, everyone's just gonna be looking at the face yeah. and the middle section. But those suspenders like really did it for me. Like I got it then. I was like, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I mean, like, you know, the truck that he had was, um, like, like a pretty small truck, so, like, he's not having a lot of space to keep any, like, personal mm -hmm. items out there. Like, most big trucks that, like, people take across country and stuff, like, they have beds in the back, mm -hmm. so, um, and, and the truck that he eventually wins does, mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit more fit for the life. Um, oh, he's got that arm weight thing in the front? Yeah, that, yeah, um, Apparently a lot of people do. Uh, also, oh. <laughs> my dad used to have a CB radio. And so like, that's how they talk to each other, like as they're on the road. And um, when I was a kid, he gave me a handle too called Little Talker. That's <laughs> um, I also, um, also referenced this movie a lot. I didn't realize how much I referenced it, but every time I did, no one would have any idea what I was talking about to the point where I felt like I hallucinated this movie. Um, but it would always end with me going, well, you know the thing, the over the top, over the top. And then I would do it and people are like, I, what? Um, so, you know, this movie means a lot to me. It's really nostalgic. So that's why I picked it. And I'm really happy we had an opportunity to talk about it. But is there anything else you folks like want to talk about before I pass this over? I'm that just so low happy. cut New York Oh yeah. Also a gem. Sorry, Tori, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just happy. I feel like in the last year or two, I've been watching many more of these, like, 80s, like, action movies, and with these, like, quintessential, like, stars, like, I was so happy when I saw Commando earlier this year, and it was so, like, enjoyable, and this felt like a very similar experience where, like, I told my dad I watched this movie, and he asked about it, and I was like, we really liked it. It was really good. And my dad's like, you're a film critic. How can you tell me this movie is really good? And I was like, I don't think you understand how much I earnestly love these, like, like really, like, weird B-movies and action movies and stuff, and, like, legitimately think they're super entertaining. Um, and especially watching Tenet this week, too, where it kind of felt like Christopher Nolan felt like I don't know, there was something about that movie where it was like, Nolan like, was like, oh, the audience is a fucking idiot or something, where this yeah, movie felt like a warm before. embrace. Where, yeah, and like, 
this movie felt like this warm embrace where it's like, oh, baby, we don't give a shit. Just, like, watch this and enjoy the shit out of it. Yeah, it feels like home in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> I will really quickly add to Sam, one of the questions in your, in, in your prompt and in your notes was, uh, who is this movie for? And I think it's for you exactly. I, I mean, it sounds like based on... <laughs> On your personal experience, as well as what what you're attracted to in film, as far as like um, uh, substance to like uh, familial character development and exploration of those themes, I think it's uh, it's very much in your wheelhouse and not a movie that uh, as an action like kind of movie, I wouldn't have expected you to rest your hat on. But I'm really glad you did because it's it's uh, one of my favorite action films uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a great great selection. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Like, I, I loved that. Thank you. <laughs> um, it has definitely made its way into my top five movies of, like, all time. Um, and with that, let's see. Like, um, thanks, everybody, for a really awesome discussion. Um, this is great. Um, what can my segue be into this <laughs> next movie? Big vehicles play a climactic part. Oh, yeah. Um, the meeting of two very different worlds. Let's do that. Let's, you know, we have Michael from the really rich world and we have Salt of the Earth, Lincoln Hawk, um, two worlds colliding. <laughs> We're going to talk about more two worlds colliding in the next pick. So Dave, go ahead. Oh, we sure are. Uh, that brings us to uh, my choice for uh, uh, the 1980s grab bag, which is 1988's uh, Robert Zemeckis picture. That is uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Um, this is a movie starring Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd. Uh, not, not the last time we've heard of uh, Christopher Lloyd so far. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, tie-in from Clue. Um, we have uh, Joanna Cassidy, who's great. We have uh, Charles uh, Fleischer, who uh, plays several different voices, including uh, Roger himself from the titular uh, title. Um, and it's, uh, it's a treat for me. Every time, I, every time I revisit this movie, I'm, like, bowled over by how impressed i am by its uh its cinematography its tech its uh perfect merger and balance of practical effects and uh animated add-ons and uh in short summary would be a movie in which um uh pretty much out of the loop uh but still uh still employed eddie valiant a uh, a pi is brought into the fold to investigate um the murder of a famous uh, Hollywood icon and uh, and producer of cartoons, uh, who is supposedly been murdered by a cartoon. Uh, this is a world in which uh, Toontown is a subset of Hollywood itself, where uh, uh, cartoon creatures, cartoon uh, entities, animated characters embody uh, the same real world that we do and are employed as workers in cartoons within Hollywood. Um, and, uh, the kind of, uh, the kind of journey to clear Roger's name as he's been accused of this crime, um, especially through Eddie Valiant, who is, uh, himself, uh, pretty resentful of, uh, this kind of merged duality between, uh, between the real and the animated for a variety of reasons. So, uh, I guess that's a succinct summary, um, although there's a lot of things for us to explore within and a lot of things that this movie, I think, says without saying them overtly uh in terms of being a palatable and really entertaining uh movie for kids but also a great film for adults and also a really productive exploration of some really important themes so uh before we get into those uh has anybody seen this for the first time for this podcast so sam yeah okay 
So I guess uh, Christine, Tori, Connor, you guys have seen it before. What are your what are your reads on it? And then we'll go to Sam for a fresh take. This was a pretty constant film in the Feeny house growing up. Um, I remember the deep, we had this like special edition DVD case that had like all these bonus features on it. Um, so this was, a, I probably haven't seen this, God, maybe like 15 years, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is sort of like a nice, like, I don't know, going home to something, Dave, you texted, like you got popcorn, you got your Coke, like you're ready to sit down. So that kind of- I like actually did this that, morning. That was great. Hit that nostalgic feel. Um, and just being, you know, someone who like, you know, talks about movies, thinks a lot about movies. Just, man, how, I don't know how they pulled this off. Cause like Detective <laughs> Pikachu is good, but yeah, like green screen, you had all these modern technologies. How's them? I mean, Zemeckis is just like a wizard sometimes um, with his films. And so the one scene in particular when uh, Roger Rabbit tries to sit in a dusty chair and he pulls his hand back and you see him pull, like take dust off of the chair with his finger. I was like mm-hmm. that, like little details like that just blew my mind and made this like rewatching it for the first time since a kid really, really rewarding um yeah i it's been i guess a couple of years since i've seen this movie and i guess i don't have the nostalgia factor for it because i didn't i didn't remember watching it with my family and even though it had cartoons i grew up with and knew it felt like too adult for me to watch like at that point like there was something about it that was like oh this is like for older people even though it has cartoons in it Mm -hmm. um but I remember the imagery of Christopher Lloyd to this like even now (laughs) to this day in this movie scares the shit out of me like he is terrifying in this movie um and I remember that feeling when I was a kid and like watching it today I was like ooh, he's like still super spooky and weird um as Judge Doom. I know, but... As though that's not a bit of a spoiler for how this character is going to be, but... I know. Um, but I did, like, really enjoy watching it again. This is, like, such a solid film. Uh, there's, like, a lot of fun elements to it, but then, like, I guess more adult themes that I picked up watching it this time, which I thought were really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I co- watched Connor's pick and this one this morning, which was really interesting because then I started thinking a lot about just like 80s obsession with kind of doing like creative takes on noir um, Mm -hmm. and like old school kind of stories. So those two were really interesting to watch back to back um, and thinking about that. Um, Because there's stuff in this that like feels like Chinatown and like it's like just interesting watching this like kind of goofy take on like more serious like noir films. Yeah I feel like in that sense it's almost simultaneously if uh as I'll get to later like a review of animation history but also a take on how that intersects with the classic Hollywood era and so on. For sure. It was also watching in watching this on Disney Plus was fascinating because they make a Disney joke at the beginning and I was like, oh, Disney owns this movie now, which is fucking wild to think about. There's a ton of Disney jokes that I'm looking forward to getting into, yeah. Yeah. Because what studio produced it? Warner Brothers? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, like Tori was mentioning, um, the, the tone, I think I had forgotten how menacing this movie really is. And my, like, I hadn't rewatched this in full in a long time. It was definitely part of my childhood. My brother was like obsessed with this movie. And so I would watch like, you know, Little Sister being like, I wanna watch all this 
stuff and but like this movie feeling like it seeped into my brain as this menacing and dark presence of my childhood because when i was rewatching the scene all the christopher lloyd scenes yeah the the vat of what's it called um the dip the dip the last scene when he gets rolled over oh it was all coming back to me and like that fear and just like unsettling pit in my stomach was like wow this was like a part of my childhood that I think I like tried to move beyond <laughs> and now it's like all coming back <laughs> cool well that brings us to Sam who is their first viewing what do you think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit so I think seeing it for the first time as a kid and seeing it for the first time as a 30-year-old woman um, creates a very different experience. <laughs> and so I can't say that this movie was something I would want to watch again. Um, I didn't care for it that much, but I really do appreciate like the structure that it's set for animation and for like, again, the melding of two different worlds. Um, mm for the future, um, the animation style, it activated every bone in my body and I don't know in what way, but it like, it like made me uncomfortable. I don't know why, but like, it was still kind of incredible. And like, honestly, like I love Space Jam. And so like, I, I feel like if this movie didn't exist, like neither would Space Jam. So like, I'm, I'm really grateful for the movie for this. Um, I will say though that w there were definitely parts that made me laugh out loud. Like at the very beginning um, when they're talking and they're like, oh, he doesn't like tunes. His brother was killed by a tune. I, whoo, that really made me laugh for a long time. Nice. And Sam, really quickly, I mean, uh, do you have much of a relationship with like cartoons of this, of the era it's portraying of like, cartoons of the 1940s and 50s via like Hanna-Barbera or Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies? Yeah. Okay. Huh. That's interesting then. Because yeah, I think it has a lot to say about those things. It's really engaging. Um, but I think, uh, can I just like go off of oh, what's of course. like maybe something you're getting at, Sam? Like the movie is also extremely loud constantly and is like in a in a an aggressive way and i feel like watching that animation within its own world and context as old anime uh, as old like it's like oh this is a kid this is for kids it's loud because kids love loud and engaging things for me it was watching those specific characters and animation with the backdrop of this sort of like seedy underworld and like characters that are extremely um like in this like potentially like violent world like it, it puts a whole new spin on watching characters that put dropped in a kid's cartoon seem harmless so maybe it's that like sort of jarring sort of tension between those two backdrops that might give it its like vibe i, I don't know actually christine i feel like you really hit the nail on the head for me there Totally I'm, I'm terrified by all of the characters in yeah. this movie. <laughs> Hit the and, ball on the head? Yeah. And tonally, it's so strange, too, because you, you have, like, these two, like, totally different genres that you're, like, throwing together where you have, like, kids' cartoons that, like, like were, you know, fairly innocent, like, for the most part, like, all of those cartoons, like Mickey Mouse and the Hanna-Barbera and all of that. And then, like, 
the main character who plays it straight for the majority of the time is this like 1940s 50s like gumshoe detective type that's like playing it very serious and so it's like it is like a crazy mash of genres together which I think like works for for me for the most part but like it's so strange to think of like putting those things together like making it work you know mm -hmm. nice well yeah I, I I think I agree with a lot of that I I think that the uh I mean, I think in, in terms of like the disparate uh, difference between uh, practical effects and uh, and animated after the fact post production effects are, are merged together completely harmoniously in this movie. I think there are so few moments that, like there are almost no shots in this movie, if not at least scenes that don't feature at least one practical effect accentuated by animation added after the fact. And I think it does it pretty brilliantly. Like there's all sorts of like, uh, like tremendous respect within the, the filmmaking community as concerns this movie to the degree that um, what one kind of like industry term uh, as concerns like Disney insiders and like people involved in the production of those movies is what's called bumping the lamp, um, which harkens back to like when Eddie and uh, Roger go into a room in Dolores's uh, workspace and they go into a, a back room uh, one of them like bumps uh, the lamp in the back room and it kind of like sways back and forth creating this like very like classic noir sense of like shifting light, which um, they they went out of their way to like uh, do tons of extra work to make sure that the shadows between the actual room and the animation synced up. And to this day, Disney insiders and producers refer to this as bumping the lamp, which is kind of a short term to refer to going to ex going the extra mile to make uh, an animated scene a little more special, even if and uh, audience members don't really notice it. So it's just kind of like this, uh, almost like a cinematic standard in, in a certain way as concerns animation as, as regards like merging it with like practical effects and things like that, um, which I thought was really amazing. Um, I think the movie does a really incredible job of hearkening, uh, of telling a story set in like a noir Hollywood kind of vibe but also merging that with uh, the the animate the history of animation, um, while also making like some other allegorical connections, which I'll return to. But um, before I get to any of that, does anybody have any kind of like really big standout moments or anything that really stood out or anything that they considered a problem with this movie? I think for me, what stuck out that I didn't quite you know just didn't think about when I was a kid was the idea of like gentrification, redlining building freeways, demolishing other community, communities that are othered. Um, Dave, in the beginning, you brought up, it's saying things, but not saying, not, you know, forcing, I think like that idea is like really deftly handled um, at yeah. the end of the movie with Christopher Lloyd's character, um, who wants to demolish Toontown to build a freeway to make gas stations, billboards, cheap motels just to rake in all the cash that he can from this freeway from Hollywood to Pasadena. My God, it'll be beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> you, he sounds like Palpatine when he tells Bob Hoskins, you lack vision. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's also this whole thing that is like, it's, it's what's considered, um, sorry, I'm looking through my notes here. It's what's called the, uh, the great American uh, steel car scandal scandal which is pretty much hotly debated as far as U.S. historians go. Um, one historian, uh, Colin, 
Marshall summed it up as the idea was simply that General Motors and a bunch of other companies that were beneficiaries of the automobile economy got together and bought up streetcar lines around the country so they could dismantle them. Uh, the theory kind of sprung up in 1973 with a paper by an antitrust attorney, Bradford Snell, uh, and it gained a lot of traction when distributed through the Senate. The Senate. Um, Marshall went on to say that that really solidified the idea in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles zeitgeist, that the loss of streetcars was foisted by, uh, foisted on the public by a shady cabal of automobile and manufacturers, oil companies, and tire manufacturers. Um, that connected all the references to the trolley system, public right. transportation, really promote interesting. And now you think of Los Angeles as like terrible public transportation overrun by cars and freeways and which is yeah what it says in the in the movie when he's hitching a ride with those kids on the back of uh, one of the red cars mm -hmm. which were outdated and, and dismantled is uh hey los angeles has one of the best public transit systems in the world now this is where it gets a little murky with historians because in a sense it was regarded as like just the emergent uh, emergent auto boom that was inevitably going to do away with this, but it it also plays a role in gentrification, Connor, as you mentioned, um, in the sense that like uh, the uh, the analogy is Toontown, um, which is going to be paved over and just destroyed in order to make way for this new freeway system that can benefit the uh, the county and the city in a deeply capitalist sense, um, even though it's going to displace marginalized communities, which in this sense are tunes. Um, in the reality of Los Angeles, when the um, freeway expansion project really took hold. It displaced um, thousands of, of local residents who were largely lower income individuals or people of color um, who are personified in this sense by, by tunes, which I, I could see being like a dicey concept, but at the same time, it also plays into kind of like 1940s and 50s Hollywood where, uh, you know, these tunes are revered when they are actors and when they embody the roles that we expect them to but as far as their personal agency and identity and socioeconomic situation, we don't really give a shit, um, which is very reflected in the, the tunes treatment throughout this movie where they're lauded stars of stage and screen, but are also not someone who are considered second-class citizens whose needs and agency are disregarded. Who like their labor just... is exploited as well. Right. I mean, there are plenty of scenes where they walk into a bar and all of the servers are tunes and like, um, and their allusions to like underpaid to like to or like, oh, they're paid peanut like he throws Dumbo some peanuts. Mm -hmm. um, and you see like Hollywood execs with their nice offices. Well, yeah. And then sorry, then Chloe. there's another level of it too, because like, in the opening, you like meet the detective and the world he lives in with like, you know, he's in debt, obviously, he's at this bar where tons of people are getting laid off by this company. And so it's like, it's not even just the tunes that you see in poverty and affected by gentrification, it is also these like, other like human people too. Mm -hmm. The only people you see like making money are like the Hollywood execs, like these businessmen, and like, I guess maybe the police too, that you're introduced to in this movie, but like, but then he also hates tunes. So then you have like create, creating this like, you know, class conflict among these like the tunes and these like poor like people. And like, mm. they're not actually fighting with the people who are causing all of these problems, which are the corporations and the people with money and in power, which is like very interesting. Sounds hauntingly familiar for a movie made in 1988. Oh, ah, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, I think a, a great moment of world building is that in the bar when in a, in a really funny scene where Judge Doom tracks Roger Rabbit down to the bar and does shaving a haircut too, but like no tune. Yes. Like there's so many wonderful moments of world building where it's not ex- like there's, it feels to me very little exposition and we're seeing through action how this world operates. So you see that oh. as like a way to like of how, and that pays off in so many ways of how humans can manipulate tunes um, to like kind of get what they want. And also that this judge has the authority, I guess, to just execute tunes. Right. And has to find a way to execute them. Right. Like spends legitimate time creating the, uh, the dip to like get rid of them, which is like really sinister and scary. Shoe in the dip. I know that like that's like very traumatic to watch. And Connor, as you touch on, like as far as as far as exposition that is visual instead of told, I think there's one scene in this movie that's an, an amazing summary of um of uh of Eddie Valiant's character, Bob Hoskins' mm-hmm. character, which is it, him getting drunk in, in his uh like now pretty much defunct PI office and just yeah. like kind of like. We, we see him drinking and then it, the camera continues to move to this very like um, dusty and like untouched kind of shrine to his brother who used to be his partner. And we, we pan through all these things that are like their stories of how they used to help tunes solve problems and used to like help solve cases for tunes. And that also shows a picture of uh, them like getting signed onto the police force and they're both wearing goofy noses as like 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 they're kind of like on the level and then goes even a step further to show them with their father who used to be like an entertainer like a circus entertainer so like you know that like bob hoskins has this bob hoskins character uh, eddie valiant has this history of like per- performance and like entertainment in his blood that he's denying because he's he's rejected it because of his brother's death at the hands of a tune but it's also like so deeply tied to his character where in the last act of the movie, when he becomes so animated, almost so cartoon-like, it's natural oh, totally. in a sense because it's part of his family lineage. And all of that is just a, a camera pan without dialogue and is brilliant. Yeah. Oh, and there's that scene in the bar when he goes to see Jessica perform where he's like, he sees Betty Boop and they're talking and it's very obvious he knows her and like cares about her. And so it's like, oh, you don't actually hate tunes. Like you just are, you know, traumatized by this event that happened to you that involves a tune. (laughs) Right. And then a tune helps him, you know, break down that barrier for himself and yeah. in a way that reconnects to his own individual familial history, which is yeah. really brilliant. And also the brilliance of that interaction with Betty Boop is that um, she's on hard times because of color cartoons coming into the fore and she's a black and white cartoon. And even when she does the uh, boop, boop, a doop, her voice cracks with this like kind of like aging Hollywood starlet kind of vibe of just like written off irrelevance just due to like ageism and stuff. And it's, it's such a thoughtful meditation on, 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 film history and animated film history, especially as regards Disney. I'm surprised they got away with this because there's the one scene where we first are introduced to Jessica Rabbit doing her performance with this beautifully animated uh, sequin dress, like that they were able to pull that off in and of itself is great. But you'll notice in the background, the the backing band is uh, the Crows from Dumbo. And that's a really loaded image because that could either mean via like the noir 
uh, the noir tropes, which are steeped in, you know, 1930s and 40s racism and Jim Crow era racism, which is what those crows represent. That's, that's this white woman's backing band is, is like a, an analog, a, car, a racist cartoon analog for black people. But it's also a cartoon, this movie that came out in 1988 is keenly aware of criticism of Disney's like misuse of certain ideas and tropes. So I think that's really intentional in a way that is like kind of a real thoughtful pot shot at the racist history of some Disney cartoons um, that it got a rare opportunity to do because it licensed these characters. That was my question is how did, how did Warner Brothers get the rights to Disney characters to present them? That in the movie? I- I don't know the specifics, but I do know that it had an estimated budget of $70 million in 1988, which made it the most expensive film produced in the 1980s, um, and is probably almost entirely because of licensing rights. Wow, that kind of surprises me. Like, I, you know, Dave, I, I've still been, like, ruminating, <coughs> like, the, what did you say, the, the lamp bump? Yeah. Um, like the amount of time that must have taken to animate and connor you mentioned the dust like it feels like it would take hours upon hours upon hours and so like most of the money would go there so it's like kind of surprising to me that it was like mostly licensing yeah which i mean i'm sure i mean 70 million in 1988 is a fortune so there there were other competing factors of course and signing on christopher lloyd uh, hot on the heels of uh Robert Zemeckis' other, other, yeah, franchise, uh, Back to the Future. Um, so I'm sure that was really expensive. But yeah, it was mostly licensing rights, as I understand it. But there was also just like, yeah, Sam, as you mentioned, like a brilliance to how they were able to maintain those practical effects on a budget with those considerations involved. That's really impressive, I think. I'm really grateful to be in this conversation right now because like, I feel like I have a deeper appreciation for this movie. I kind of like wrote it off a little bit, but you know, just listening to you talk, I'm like, wow, this feels like a real passion project for people who like deeply, deeply loved animation. And so, um, wow, thanks for this. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I I think that's really, I think that hits the nail on the head. It really is, this is a movie that despite being, you know, largely principal photography is, is a love letter to 1940s and 50s animation, while also maintaining a critical analysis 40 years after the fact, or 30 or 40 years after the fact. Um, I also just think it's an amazing script. Every, every line either advances the narrative or plays into the genre parody. Um, I, I just think beat by beat, there's not a moment of this movie that I, I find objectionable or like a big problem i uh, there's maybe the animated like bullets of one of which is like a, a native american parody among cowboy parodies which is a little not great but on the whole i think it, it does a really good job of a really brave job for a, a children's movie of tackling an analysis of the hypocrisies of race casting and and uh, the socioeconomic situation in Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s, while also being a brilliant noir parody and a, and a great animated movie with heart. So I think uh, it checks all my boxes. It's really one of one of my favorite animated animated movies. Yeah, Rod, Roger Rabbit's just such a great foil, like archetypal foil to the yeah. protagonist. Like that's just, yeah, there's just so many depths that this movie could be explored at. 
he's not in it for very long but when benny the cab showed up i got like very excited because for some reason that's like a character that's like stuck in my head and i think he's like so adorable i was very excited about him <laughs> also, after oh go ahead just when the the car is a passenger in another car and he turns his <laughs> headlights on. <laughs> I thought that was really cute. He's like, no, he's not even a passenger. He's driving the car because yeah. the rabbit can't drive. And his wheels get messed up because of the goop. So he, as a car, as a useless. Car drives another car. <laughs> it's also, uh, just before signing off, unless anyone else has anything really like important they want to add, one of my favorite moments in this movie, and I, I'm in hysterics every time I watch it, and I was on the floor today watching it as well, is uh, the parachute sequence when um, Bob Hoskins is falling through the air, and he's joined by, uh, on either side, uh, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, kind of like the champion, like icons, animated icons of each individual uh, production house. And they make the choice for, rather than Bugs Bunny, the more extreme version of Mickey Mouse, they allow for Mickey Mouse to be the one that says, and this is one of my favorite lines of all time. Yeah, you could really get killed. Ha ha. <laughs> but like, as cool as a cucumber. Like, <laughs> that was also, they're all fall free falling. And I just remembered noting that Mickey Mouse was just so, just so chill and so cool. But that was menacing. I don't know. Everything, every detail was... Yeah, with my oh. I, I loved the dueling um, uh, 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 piano. piano. Daffy and Donald. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I loved um, Bob Hoskins, like the human form interacting with this cartoon world. Um, if I watch it again, I would definitely love to like think more about like how cartoons influence how human physiology operates, and then when humans go into the cartoon world. Um, and I'm surprised that when he turns in, when Bob Hoskins turns into a puddle in the elevator because it goes up so fast, how that has not become a meme yet for something. They turned, a human, they turned Bob Hoskins into a puddle. And I mean, also just like the, like Garrett was like, when you're watching this movie, just remember like, this is like one of the first times that like an actor had to just act against nothing for like most of the movie, which is like so insane to think about. Um, and then he also was like, also remember that the guy that voices Roger Rabbit is the really creepy dude in the basement in Zodiac, which is yeah. so funny. I was like, oh, fuck, those are the same people. That's so wild. Um. <laughs> I did not realize Bob Hoskins was British, too. I was like, yeah. that, like, I can only hear him in that, like, like noir -y detective -y. So like new yorker yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like uh, yeah super mario voice oh right. my god he movie. was in the mario movie which is actually uh one of the last notes that i have here concerning the production of this film is that bob hoskins said that for two weeks after the seeing the movie um his young son wouldn't talk to him and when he finally asked why, the son said that he couldn't believe his father had the opportunity to work with cartoons such as Bugs Bunny and didn't let them meet him. Oh my God. Which is, yes. it's initially adorable. But I also thought about it for a second and was like, wait, Bob Hoskins waited two weeks in absolute shutout silence with his child to be <laughs> like, hey, wait a minute, what's the problem with this movie? Um, <laughs> that's funny on both accounts. <laughs> But yeah, a, a movie that I really adore and I, I was really glad to have an opportunity to talk about it. I could talk about this movie all day, but um, 
I know that we've got another one that we we're really interested in getting to, and it, it ties into our noir theme from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, as far as uh, 1980s exploration of different genre tropes and uh, different existing properties goes. And that brings us, of course, to Connor's choice. For the last film in our 80s uh, grab bag, it is Tim Burton's Batman 1989. Not the Batman coming out eventually, uh, but just Batman. Get well, Robert um, Pattinson. Yeah, while we wait for Robert Pattinson to recover from COVID and to resume filming. Oh, yes, please be okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I bring that up because that's really the main, the announcement of that movie is really the main reason why I chose Batman 89. Um, <laughs> this is a movie that, it's probably the Batman movie I've seen the least. Um, so I'm thinking about what would be a really good 80s pick. Um, I thought this would be a fun one, especially with the DC news. I love Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, so I'm really excited um, to dive into this movie. Um, it was released uh, domestically on June 23rd, 1989, uh, directed by Tim Burton, who we've talked about, I think, probably quite a bit on the podcast, when he was only 29 years old. What? Believe he was 29 that. years old. It's like going to watch um, hockey, and it's like, everyone's 22. And I'm oh like, my oh, God. God my I life. had the same thought the other day. <laughs> Investing emotional. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> um, so yeah, he was really young. I didn't even realize that he directed Beetlejuice probably when he was like 25, 26, yeah. uh, which is kind of wild. Um, wow, I haven't done anything with my life. Cool. <laughs> uh, written by uh, Sam Hamm, uh, who really hasn't written much else, and then Warren Skarin, who because of the writer's strike, he was not part of the Writers Guild of 1988, so he was brought in because he wasn't in the Guild to oh, do wow. movie rights. Um, he wrote, he helped write Beverly Hills Cop 2 and also Beetlejuice. Wow. Um, starring and who gets top billing, Jack Nicholson as the Joker. That was actually, <laughs> and I love the, the background of this movie too. Just the production history is really fascinating. Jack Nicholson as the Joker, Michael Keaton as Batman, Kim Basinger as Vicki Vale, and Billy D. Williams in the small role as Harvey Dent. You can't forget um, Alfred. Who played Alfred? Uh, hold on. Is this still Michael or this Michael Go? Michael Go, yeah. the same as in Batman Forever. Who and has Batman almost uh, two hundred no. acting credits? This man has been in so many things. He was in Hammer horror movies. Um, he was in several Tim Burton movies after this. He died in two thousand eleven at like ninety five. This guy's like a crazy wow. actor he was in a 1960s uh pride and prejudice uh so he he's so good as alfred but also like has been in so much like he's insane also his role in batman and robin where he has stage one mcgregor or stage he, he's got like stage one mcgregor syndrome oh, yeah. which has four stages but as we hate movies the podcast points out the first stage is fatal so <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I'm sorry. I was impressed. I didn't realize that there was crossover. Connor explained to me that it was the same, like, it was intended, all four movies between Burton's and... Uh, Schumacher's. Schumacher, yeah, Clooney, are all considered part of the same series, which I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. I'm sure one day we'll talk about Batman and Robin or Batman Forever. I'm sure we'll get to those. I want to talk about Batman Forever so <laughs> Um, and the last just big <clears throat> part of the production uh, was music by Danny Elfman, um, who was, it was really funny watching interviews with him before because he was so nervous because he was really young too. 
Um, so he was so nervous going to this, what was a 35 to $40 million budget, which in 1988 when they were filming was enormous. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Who Framed Roger Rabbit was $70 million budget, um, was just, gotta, you know, that's kind of crazy. You gotta pay the mouse. Oh yeah. Um, before we dive into it, uh, just a quick synopsis for folks who aren't familiar with it. Um, although if you've seen a Batman thing, you're probably pretty familiar with what this movie's about. Um, it follows Michael Keaton as Batman. He is basically year one Batman. Uh, he's just coming onto the scene um, and he comes into the conflict with Jack Napier, who's played by Jack Nicholson, who gets turned into the Joker. And Tim Burton describes the movie as a duel between two freaks, one who hides in the shadows and one who feels liberated by his freakishness to just feel no inhibitions and in moving through society that way and doing what he wants. Um, and he even love kind of, thinking about Batman as a freak. <laughs> that's such uh, a great like lip. Sorry. No, no, that's and that's what drew Burton to this because he said he was he's not really a comic book fan, um, so that's why he wanted comic book fans to help write the movie because he's just not you know that's just not his you know interest. Uh, but his angle um, was really yeah this freak who lives in the shadows. Um, and I guess just a quick side tangent, um, that's why he cast Michael Keaton, because that was really controversial casting at the time, because uh, he was known for Mr. Mom, Night Shift, all these other comedies. Um, and so he was like, if you cast a really big, you know, six foot five actor, you don't, they don't need to put on a bat costume to scare people, but some kind of average guy like Michael Keaton with scary eyes, he'll, he's crazy enough to put on a bat costume, Michael Keaton himself. Um, so that's why he wanted to cast him. I was also working with him in Beetlejuice. He's a brilliantly unhinged Batman and a brilliantly unhinged Bruce Wayne at the same time. Uh, the scene when he's in Vicky Vale's apartment, he's like, you want to get crazy? I'll get crazy. <laughs> um, no, I he's love... like, what's your move here, bro? I do not know what you're trying to do. <laughs> Just total seat of his pants. Um, before I, I go kind of any further, um, has anybody, was this the first time watching Batman 89 for anybody? Nope. This, I think, was the first full viewing, because in my mind, the Batman Returns mm -hmm. was this movie. Mm. I think I had, like, mixed it up. So I think for the first first time for me, I'll say. Nice. And everyone else has seen it before? Oh, yeah. Many times. <laughs> um, awesome. So kind of like any just sort of general thoughts on revisiting this movie. Um, maybe after a long time or watching it kind of more recently, any sort of just general thoughts on Batman 89? It's kind of weird to say, but this felt refreshing <laughs> to watch um, because it, it didn't take itself all that seriously. And it feels like a comic book movie. Um, I will say that the fact that this came out in 89 and Beetlejuice came out in 88 was like blew my mind. I was like, wow, Michael Keaton really, he really brought it in the, the late 80s. Even though this movie kind of like derailed his career to a degree for a while. Did it? Did it make him uncastable? Mm -hmm. Really? Why? I think just he kind of fell into the trap of like, oh, you're the Batman guy. Well, I don't want yeah. you for this project because you're the Batman guy. Like, oh, you can't do this smaller role or this more. Uh, that's so why it works when he was the Birdman guy. Birdman. I was going to say, it's Birdman essentially is like the Birdman perfect fulfillment. Yeah. Oh, got it. But it's interesting because I think it made sense, Connor, when we were talking and you're like, Jack Nicholson, part of his contract was top billing because something that really stood out to me, I was like, this really isn't Michael Keaton's movie. This is Jack Nicholson's movie. And like Joker 
seems to get more screen time, more abilities to kind of like, and I guess that's kind of a villain also in a superhero movie can really play it up. And like, sometimes the, the superhero becomes sort of the straight man, like responding to the villain, the oversized villain, but like, Michael Keaton kind of did nothing in this, not did nothing. I don't want to discredit his performance, but to be defined by Batman, I thought he was kind of lost in the suit as I was watching it. Yeah. It was enjoyable to watch, but I, I, I felt like I didn't really like get much of Michael Keaton's presence, like as I would in Beetlejuice say. He like mm -hmm. obviously dominates that movie and you really like, see him playing it up. I agree but, with you, Christine. Like, I, mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen this movie too, too many times. And the first time I saw it, I was a little older. And I remember being like, man, I can't believe I, like, slept on this for so long. It's so much fun. And then this time watching it, it didn't feel as fun to me. It felt, like, a little flatter, which I was, like, kind of disappointed about. But I think, like, I remember Michael Keating being more fun and charismatic than he actually was. And that was, like, one big part of it. Um, but it was, it, it was nice just watching, like, uh, Tim Burton, because I don't go back to Tim Burton as much as I used to. Um, I don't think it's controversial to say with this group of people, but some of our friends might, like, get mad about it, but, like, I mean, obviously, like, Tim Burton just, like, isn't good anymore. I think that's totally fair. It's um, it's been a very long time since he's been decent, and so it was, like, nice to go back to a time where, like, he was good. And, um, but like the things I liked about it was it definitely felt the most comic booky of like recent Batmans, which I appreciated because it's like, now we get these like dark gritty Batmans, which is fine. Like overall, like it works for Dark Knight. Hopefully it works for the Robert Pattinson one. Um, I didn't really see any of these DC stuff, so I don't know. Um, but it was like nice to see them like try to make this feel like a comic book. Hmm. And because Tim Burton is so like big, it makes sense that he did a Batman, which was like dark, which is kind of his thing, as well as being kind of like, not like campy, but like, you know, like big and fun and, and all of that. So that was like a pretty nice part of this. And it was nice that they didn't feel the need to make this an origin story to like open this new line of Batmans. Uh, we didn't, I mean, in the middle of the movie, we see like the parents die, but we didn't have to like watch him get the suit and like become Batman and all this shit. He just like already was in the role for a while before we like walk in which is which is refreshing because i think we're all probably kind of sick of like origin stories with uh superhero movies now right yeah this is a this yeah. is the first batman movie we were ever treated to and he's batman full swing about six minutes in which is awesome yes, yes. and that origin energy is focused on jack nicholson and the joker right which i think was like 100 mm percent -hmm. the right call yeah What's interesting to me is like the movie opens up and you see a family um, traverse yeah. the streets. And I was like, well, here we go. I like forgot. And I was like, that's not it? Oh my <laughs> God, what a relief. <laughs> that lady's not wearing pearls. This isn't going to be a murder. <laughs> um, I will say that it was fun watching Jack Nichols 
Nicholson do Jack Nicholson? And I, that was also a real recog- or like a realization I had. Like, Jack Nicholson is not a versatile actor. He like does the same thing over and over, but in this particular, okay, I'm painting with broad strokes. I'll give you that. But I think that there's a kernel of truth in my opinion. <laughs> but um, it was a lot of fun to watch him be the Joker and have this sort of like outsized per like personality and persona and was like, like extremely scary. Um, and I think that as cartoonish as this movie is in a really fun and playful way, Nicholson's Joker is really scary. <laughs> he's, he's also the only one that uh, reminds me that this is an 80s movie. Everyone else is playing it like it's a 1950s noir. Um, That's true, yeah. And so anytime Nicholson comes on, it's like these bright, crazy colors, and he's like playing 80s music in the background. He's got the boombox guy. I was like, I need someone, any room I'm in, got the boombox. I have a song for every space. Well, Prince Prince (laughs) did Hopefully a Prince song, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Prince did three songs for this movie, and they only make their way into it aside from the Elfin score, which is the overarching theme of the whole thing, they're only in it when he's on screen. Yeah. Which gives it a very different, yeah, very, Christine, as you mentioned, like, uh, a very juxtaposed 80s energy into what would otherwise be uh, a traditional noir. And, and I think one of the big strengths of this movie, and I think of Tim Burton's core style, is this idea of juxtaposition. We've talked about Two Friend Roger Rabbit. I think this movie of the, like, hellscape that is like Gotham. There's a great quote from the, um, the set This town needs an enema. <laughs> oh my God. Um, production designer Anton first, um, he wanted to like make clashing architectural styles. He said, quote, to make Gotham City the ugliest and bleakest metropolis imaginable. And he added, we imagined what New York City might've become without a planning commission, a city run by crime with riots of architectural styles and essay in ugliness as if hell erupted through the pavement and just kept on going. Um, so that's like quite the thesis statement for the, and he like drew charcoal drawings of New York City skyline. And like that was merging Japanese architecture, you know, modern art for the time. Um, and then infusing that too with this 80s Prince music. Apparently this was one of the first movies to have two separate soundtracks developed. The Elfman soundtrack, and then I guess Prince made his own soundtrack too, even if just three songs made it in. Um, and Burton was like cool with it at first and then unhappy with, and it sounds like he was pretty unhappy with how this movie turned out in general. Yeah. Um, he says at the end, like, it's okay. Um, where is the quote that I found? I know he definitely- and Johnny Depp wasn't in it, so. <laughs> yeah. He definitely reveres Batman and Batman uh, Returns more than this movie, as mm-hmm. I understand it. Yeah, he asks, is this more of a cultural phenomena or a great movie? Kind of basically, mm-hmm. um, it's sort of kind of like what he's sort of thinking about upon reflection of this movie. There's a, a good... lot of pieces. Like mm-hmm. it, 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 it has a lot of moving pieces that don't really coalesce and like feel all that like as far as like a story. So maybe actually a cultural phenomenon is a great way of describing it because these like yeah markers of like both '80s vibe and cool sets from that sort of like noirish darker vibe with like the art deco you know who i i loved in this movie uh 
I'm sure I've seen him in other stuff. Robert Wool, who played Alexander Knox, the mm-hmm. news reporter. He oh my was, God. like, so much fun anytime he was on screen. I, like, feel like I, like, latched onto him the most when I was watching it this time. Was he the guy working on the piece with uh, yeah. Kim Basinger? I was convinced they were going to kill him in the movie. And he didn't, he made it through the entire movie. I know. There was that point where she like had him on top of the car and slams the brakes and he just falls off. And I was like, what? Are you trying to kill him right now? Like, what is going on? Um, Can we talk about how terrifying, like the way people were dying, like laughing and with this smile, like this was, deeply terrifying like I rewatched this and I felt unsettled and I couldn't believe it the news the newscasters are are laughing that kind of had a videodrome vibe it was like watching these distressing um like people on like through the tv and just like being overcome with this like laughing gas or whatever was yeah. happening and who framed roger rabbit also like la- the idea of like laughter being lethal this menacing mm-hmm. laughter yeah um there was a part so you know when they're doing the the parade and the um batman takes the balloons and he just like sets it up into the atmosphere and i was like mm, global warming <laughs> <laughs> Listen, he's just fighting criminals. He's not helping the environment, all right? I was like, God damn it, Batman. <laughs> he's so rich, but he can't do shit about that, so. <laughs> oh. I think it's kind of incredible that this movie sort of came together at all. Um, the, so the creation of this movie goes all the way back to the late 1970s. Um, when producers uh, Benjamin Melkner and Michael uh, Uslan bought the film rights to Batman and they wanted to make a dark and definitive serious version of Batman. Because sort of every generation had its own Batman until recently when we basically had Burton Batman. Like this is pretty much the same kind of cultural continuity of Batman since 1989. Because uh, you had like the serials in like the 40s and 50s. I mean, you know, there's a kernel of truth in that opinion. Until maybe Bale or right. uh, Bale and, and Nolan, but yeah. Um, and so then you had Adam West in like the 60s and so there was a it's kind of weird to think about like dec- like two decades of time where there was really no new Batman kind of media um, in the theaters and this movie was even in product like being written before the killing joke before the Dark Knight Returns so in the 80s people were like wanting to like Batman is more than just kind of like camp humor um, that they saw there were I believe from the, in July of 1980, uh, they were turned down by a lot of studios. Then in that year, in that month, uh, Warner Brothers bought the pitch to their script. And from 1980 to 1985, two screenwriters had died and there were nine rewrites of this original, the Batman script oh, that wow. would turn into Whoa. Batman 89. Um, one, one rewrite, what was that? Sorry, I was just, that's wild. That is yeah. wild just in five years. Uh, one of these rewrites uh, had a version where Bill Murray was Batman and Eddie Murphy was Robin. I, I could see Bill Murray as a, as a good villain. Like not as a Batman, but as like, I don't know, maybe, maybe an alternate. Calendar man. I was just thinking calendar man too. <laughs> it's Groundhog's Day. <laughs> That's his power. Oh my God, you you live relive your worst day over and over again. But what about Bob? He just annoys the shit out of Batman constantly. (laughs) (laughs) 
think we got something here. Or yeah. he'd be, yeah. Do any of you guys watch what we do in the shadows? Mm -hmm. I feel like he'd be energy vampire. <laughs> like oh as God, a that, good villain. That movie and also that show are comedy goals. So amazing. Um, I do think this, this is a pretty controversial opinion, I'm sure, but I do think Nicholson is our best uh, cinematic Joker by far. Um, I mean, I, I love and adore what Ledger and uh, Nolan were able to bring to the character, but even with a cursory knowledge of like the comic series, even when it got really into like the edgy, uh, kind of more extreme Joker stuff of like Killing Joke and late eighties and so on, it's like, at the end of the day, Jack Nicholson is is a menace and is a threatening villain, but is also so laced with gallows humor in a way that is so rooted in character. Like, in particular, when he's um, he's going about the uh, the gallery with his goons and they're defacing everything, the one thing that he leaves alone is a Francis Bacon painting. Just like which is like a grotesque. Meat like, and body. Yeah, this visceral, sinewy painting. And he's just like, I like this. Like that really translates to the like kind of like dark gallows humor of the character. Also so many other moments where like in the midst of like the uh, penultimate fight scene on, on top of the tower where he's getting like, uh, uh, Keaton is rocking the shit out of Nicholson, just beating the hell out of him. And in the midst of this fight, just pops on the glasses. Just You wouldn't hit a man with glasses, would you? And just like, it, yeah. it's so peppered with jokes and humor that is, appropriately dark to the character but is not like the grim dark nonsense of like Joaquin Phoenix's Joker or even like the anarchistic like um uh against type Joker of like um of, of Ledger it's just like so steeped in the authenticity of the character taken to a dark but entertaining extreme that I think yeah really yeah out. No, I'll, think, I'll give you that. Yeah, I think I don't love the uh, efforts to give him a backstory in this. I think that kind okay. of diminishes the Joker for me because I like Heath Ledger's like, it doesn't matter where I got these scars. Like, it doesn't matter where the fuck I'm from. I'm just this like chaos machine. Whereas this, I'm like, oh, you were like a gangster who was like just a violent kid and now you're the Joker. Like that stuff like doesn't totally add up for me but yeah that i think is maybe the fundamental difference in tone is like it yeah. makes so much sense for a real world joker in the kind of like quote-unquote real world yeah. framing of nolan this more like approachable like relatable reality where it's like this is someone who blows in the town like a western that doesn't have a backstory it's just this yeah. agent, they, as they say themselves an agent of chaos which is the nugget and distillation of that character in that version but this one i think is really appropriate in the sense that it if the rest of the movie is going to be a noir film, then it should be a gangster and they should be channeling an insane manic energy applied to that character through their transformation into that and so yeah. on. Like, uh, I, I see where you're coming from and I, I do agree that Ledger's fits a little more comfortably into its universe, but I think that Nicholson's is a little bit truer performatively and in terms of written tone to the overall ethos of the character in the Batman saga. But I'm not that informed about it. So that's just, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Somebody needed a backstory. Vicki Vale certainly wasn't getting it. Because <laughs> as Connor wrote in, her, in his notes, <laughs> she has like, like nothing to do. <laughs> but. Yeah, the movie definitely <clears throat> shortchanges her. I mean, I guess, I don't know. 
I feel like Burton had so much juggling that he was just like, something has to... I mean, there's so sure. many characters in this movie, and there's characters they don't do much with also, because it's like, I guess, maybe setting up for stuff. Like, there maybe there would have been a Two-Face with um, Billy D. Williams, Harvey Dent, and stuff. But, like, it's weird that he's cast in this role and then has, like, three scenes. Mm -hmm. He basically comes on screen and is like, I'm gonna clean up Gotham, and then I'm gonna seduce your daughters, and just, like, does the Billy D. thing and walks away, and it's just, like, so odd. Um, you know, like, Commissioner Gordon is, like, a nothing character, too, which, like, <laughs> Oh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's like there's yeah. But there's I don't some... know, Batman. Are you gonna see to it? <laughs> it's just like ah, oh, come on. Yeah, I, I, I was like, no. I think uh, what Sam brought up really resonated with me of like refreshing, of like w this movie existed with like definitely mythos of Batman, but not I feel like not the internet mythos of like the funneling of like the amplification of you cannot touch this property. I guess there definitely was that, but the studio and Burton didn't feel like pressure. Mm -hmm. I think to like cave to this and there's no like we gotta plan three sequels from this they definitely set up Billy D. Williams as Two-Face eventually like I think that was maybe even the plan for after for his Batman Forever Burton's Batman Forever that never happened um, but this is just feels so like fresh and not I mean incredibly driven by corporate by corporate greed and corporate money making but also not beholden to imaginary universes but uh, yeah, I feel like I recently saw Batman Forever. And what was so clear was how franchisable like Shoemaker was trying or Schumacher was trying to make that movie. Like mm -hmm. like we got like what toys are going to be created from this movie? Like already setting in motion how this would be commodified and like I, but you know, it's like I'm sure Burton it was a big budget movie and I'm sure that there were elements to that, but it didn't have that as much of that feel. It was like, all right, we're going to let Burton like make weird sets and kind of do some weird stuff that he wants to do and not be so tied down to the other considerations that a director might be forced or want to make as far as like promoting and like, yeah, the commercial aspects of the movie. And, and they turned down a Nike sponsorship to make the suit. Um, they wanted like, Nike brand, like Nike no. wanted like Nike branding on it. They're like, no. And GE wanted to make the Batmobile. They were going to give Warner Brothers $9 million, but Burton would have no creative control. GE would oh, wow. design that. And then that's what they had to do. And so it's sort of just like, while this was 100% made to sell toys um, and, you know, like Batmania of like the summer of 1989, you know, millions of dollars made from toys. Um, but it just is kind of incredible that it doesn't feel like that when watching it um and kind of just a note on uh just kind of the money that it made you know i love the box office so i got to touch on this real quick um the early summer of 1989 was pretty interesting because you had indiana jones and the last crusade setting the four-day weekend on over memorial day for 37 million dollars that was the record ghostbusters 2 comes out the weekend before batman sets the three-day weekend record with 29 million. Then Batman comes out a week later and grosses over $40 million in the opening weekend. Um, and it would grow on to make about $411 million worldwide, 11 times its budget. Wow. Um, and inflation, that would be over $600 million. Um, and an mm -hmm. estimated 60 to 70 million people bought tickets at least one time um, to see this movie. And it apparently did not make its money back. It lost, Warner Brothers lost $35 million 
um, why on this movie um, I think maybe from like the marketing from producing toys maybe they didn't I, make enough oh like maybe mm. I think too many extra, toys <laughs> got it maybe too many toys uh, but Nicholson made a killing uh, <laughs> because usually he made part of his contract was he had to be off for every Lakers home game <laughs> every single Lakers home game during filming he had to be off um, and he instead of doing his 10 million dollar just price tag lowered it to 6 million to get a commission on ticket sales and merchandise Good and, according to, and according to his biographer um, he made close to 90 million dollars which today would be 170 million dollars just from that that deal that's like yeah it's like when tom hanks was like I, i'll i'll get like paid scale for forrest gump but i get points on the back end and now he made like you know like 90 million or something off that movie so i think for me this is just like the backstory of it the box office the money that it made just really made me interested in wanting to talk about this plus it just being i think a really good really interesting movie yeah i mean it's definitely jack nicholson's movie and i i, I like i like michael keaton i just i think he had like not much chemistry. No, I. You know what? It My, was an enjoyable. Do you think he fun. comes back stronger in uh, Batman Returns than this one? I think so. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. I've been meaning to rewatch it, but I would, yeah, probably. Hmm. Um, but the he did bring a few improv elements. Um, if you, my favorite one is when. He uh, sleeps with Vicki Vale, and then she wakes up, and he's doing bat crunches. Oh, my God. That was improvised by Michael Keaton. <laughs> that, that was, was his him, idea. Though. That's so good. That's so weird. That was a weird. Yeah, you know what? I, I might walk back on my, like, comments about his performance. He does make a compelling weird guy. Like, mm -hmm. now that you said it, Connor, at the beginning, where it was like, who would put on this suit? It is definitely, like freaky quieter michael keaton I, I i feel like i have to sit with with that a little bit um, I might and, come the, around. and the dinner scene where he has a dinner with vicky vale where they sit the really long table that was his idea as well and that <laughs> line of great. like yeah I've, i don't think i've ever been in this room like all of that dinner scene was like come up with by keaton and burton the that table's like scary. a scene out of the end of network it's ridiculous that was a great scene. Oh, and when they like go to the kitchen and have like like intimate pie, and then the butler or like um, what's the character's name? Alfred. Alfred. Yeah, Alfred comes in and like tells them stories. <laughs> oh. um, well, we've been going for a while. So, any kind of final thoughts on Batman um, or any other of the films we've been talking about? A lot of surprising connections, yeah. um, and that's what's fun. I think about discussing all of them together is. Um, just the different ways that these movies from one decade kind of intersect with each other. I was wondering about the whole eight, like 40s, 50s settings in the decade of the 80s. And like you have like a 30 to 40 year gap, which is kind of like a generation. Like, and I wonder if like movie creators like wanted to be hearkening back to their child. Like, so like execs, movie creators and writers who are in their like 40s, 30s, developing plot lines that harken back to like well, think capturing about, like, some American, sort of childhood. Think about American graffiti. Like that was like very early, like Spielberg, like doing like, you know, 40s, 50s childhood stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Lucas, right? 
Or Lucas, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah, I mean. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, before, like, you know, you get, like, Star Wars and stuff, you get, like, this interesting tale of just, like, what life was like when he was a kid and everything. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. obviously any decade, there are going to be period yeah. pieces and, like, set. But I was, like, what yeah. is it about, like, 80s relationship with those... And we get so much 80s stuff now, right now. I mean, we're waiting on the next Wonder Woman, which is, like, uh, going to be 80s set and stuff, so. Uh, Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah. House of the Devil, yeah. Ooh, I love House of the Devil. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's so good. Man, the 80s. What an era. Mm. I'm sure we'll be back. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for stopping by uh, this Megasode, listening to us talk about some of our favorite 80s movies. Uh, did any of these movies connect with you? You know, was have you seen Over the Top and loved it like Sam, or was this a new, a new introduction for you? Um, any kind of plugs you want to do as we're wrapping up? Definitely check out Tori's Cronenberg. Check out article. Tori's yeah. article. Um, it's great. That will be posted, linked in Instagram and the post. So definitely be sure to check that out. And uh, yeah, my latest one was on Crash. I should have a another one out for next month. Um, and then I also was on the uh, most recent episode of Love to Mo I Love to Movie Movie this week, talking about Tenet with people. So mm. it's very spoiler heavy, and also us trying to understand some of the items we saw. So if you <laughs> haven't seen the movie yet, you might not want to listen to that episode. I or maybe listen, listen to the episode so you know what's going on in the actual movie. I mean. We still don't know what's going on in certain <laughs> parts, but John David Washington is a fucking movie star. So like, yeah. And Elizabeth Debicki is like a golden goddess. She's like gorgeous. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for stopping by today. We definitely have some exciting ideas in the work for future episodes. Um, definitely be sure to fill out the guest form. I'll we post that on Instagram. We've gotten some responses already. So uh, the rest of 2020, while the world might be cooling down because it's on fire somewhere else, um, we've got yeah. some cool stuff turning here. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty tired. <laughs> well done, everyone. All right, everybody. Yeah. Take care. Enjoy movies. <laughs> <laughs>